Heavenly Father, today we put on the full armor to protect us against attack. We put on the belt of truth to protect against lies and deception. We put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts from the temptations. We put the gospel of peace on our feet to walk in your light, peace, and freedom with the Holy Spirit. We rebuke anxious thoughts. We take up your shield of faith for protection to block and destroy all the darts and threats thrown at us by the enemy. We put on the helmet of salvation to cover our minds and thoughts, reminding us that we are children of a mighty king. We are forgiven, set free, saved by the blood of Jesus. We take up the sword of the spirit, your living word, that has the power to demolish strongholds and is sharper than any double-edged sword. We come to you, Lord, in prayer daily. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. What's up, you guys? Welcome to The Imagination. I'm your host, Emma, and today I'm honored and excited to have back on the show for the third time, child assassin, SRA, human trafficking and mind control survivor, man of God, devoted father and husband, writer and author, podcast host at Nathan Reynolds on YouTube, content creator, international speaker, entrepreneur, farmer, military veteran, wilderness mentor, executive protection agent, transport specialist, chef for the homeless, market seller, and expert on all things linen and wool, Nathan Reynolds. A little bit about Nathan as a recap, in case you missed his incredible testimony the first time he was on the show. He was born into a multi-generational incest-based family through the Reynolds bloodline and from birth was systematically abused, mind-controlled, and mentally fractured to keep his abuse compartmentalized with amnesic barriers. It wouldn't be until later in life and into his marriage that his suspicious past would begin unweaving and unwinding itself, revealing a layered double life checkered with deceit, betrayal, pain, torture, and horrors beyond comprehension perpetrated on him from the same family, military, government, and community members that should have been protecting him, but instead were partaking in what Nathan has appropriately coined radically intelligent evil. The last time Nathan was on, we had the biggest turnout yet on any YouTube podcast premiere in the history of the imagination. You all showed up to listen to this incredible warrior share answers to some of the deepest, darkest, and most nitty-gritty questions he's been asked to answer before on any podcast. And I can't thank you all enough for giving Nathan the army he's always deserved to be surrounded by, God's army. The questions that Nathan answered on the last episode were submitted by all of you, and there were some absolutely thought-provoking and incredible questions. And as promised, we are going to continue our deep dive into Delta programming, being raised as a child assassin, the Jason groups and projects, human hunting, healing, and so much more on the second Q&A using the questions we didn't get to in the last episode. Nathan has this amazing way of bearing his soul to the world. It's one thing to be able to sit with people and their healing. And it's a completely different level to be able to sit with people in the disparity of their suffering and anguish from a place of genuine understanding. And Nathan has that gift. I believe one of the gifts God gave Nathan so his suffering wouldn't be in vain is the ability to sit with us all. And in turn, we too finally feel seen. If you've been following Nathan's interviews and testimony, you've heard the story he tells about the first time he ever felt seen when he discovered the work of the late Russ Isdar. Russ's work helped Nathan regain his identity and the tools he needed to remember who he really was and who he could become. And now, over seven years later, Nathan stands strong and powerful in his convictions, passing the same torch he was given to everyone on the other side of the screen. 
Nathan is now our witness, and we are all finally seen. I'll have Nathan's playlist in the show notes. You can go indulge in the last couple episodes in case you missed them. And I I highly encourage you guys to please go buy his book, Snatch from the Flames. I'm going to have that below also, all the links to grab that. He has a free PDF. He has a free audio version on his website and on his web and on his YouTube channel. And I would encourage you all to purchase it if you have the means to, to help support survivors. I'm also going to have Nathan's YouTube channel, TikTok, and every platform he's on in the show notes. Please go follow and support Nathan's work. A couple reminders and updates before we kick off today's episode. If you are on iTunes or Spotify, please leave this podcast a review and a rating if you find value in it. If you're on YouTube, please share and subscribe. And I just recently started a Substack account where I'm putting on my investigative journalist hat and would love your support. It's free to sign up and you can find that at www.emmacatherine.substack.com. All my other links are in the show notes as well. Please connect with me so we can keep in touch should I be censored on any of these platforms. So you guys, without further ado, please help me in welcoming today's guest of honor, survivor and anti-child abuse advocate, fierce warrior, unrelenting voice for the voiceless, brilliant educator, overcomer, passionate pursuer of truth, and someone I'm honored to call a friend and a brother in Christ, the one, the only, Nathan Reynolds. Nathan, thank you so much for being here again today. Fired up, Emma. Let's do this thing. (laughs) Man, last time was incredible. So we had a ton of amazing questions submitted. So for people who might have missed last time, or if you're new, I put out some feelers online to get some questions to ask Nathan that maybe people had never heard and about some specific topics that Nathan doesn't get the opportunity to talk about a lot on podcasts, including programming and assassin training and human hunting and all these really dark things that that he alludes to in his book but hasn't gone into a lot on a podcast. So we are going to take a lot of the questions and we had a lot, you guys. Um, we might have to span this over another episode or two, which is really cool, but we're going to start chipping away at this list a little bit more. Um, again, go listen to that last episode to learn a little bit about what we talked about last time. And we're going to build on that a little bit this time, although you don't have to listen to that first episode to to understand the context of this one. So Nathan, I thought we would start with um, one of the first questions, actually, that I, I was submitted. And you had answered this a little bit last time, but when we had talked off camera, um, you had mentioned a few more things, and I thought it would be a really great opportunity to go into this specific topic. But somebody was asking about deep underground military bases and if they exist and what you have seen and your experiences being in these programs. And you had alluded a little bit to it last time, but I know that there's a, a little bit of a deeper story to this that you've experienced. And I'd love for people on the other side to hear it because it's not something that that we're exposed to, not not being in here. And there's so many of these unknown horrific things that are going on behind the scenes that us, the public, are not made aware of. So I'm going to turn it over to you to to maybe explain your own experiences with this and, and what you want people to know about DOMS and deep underground military bases. Absolutely. So first of all, one of the most beneficial things people can do is research for themselves, first and foremost, above anything else, because Someone else just sharing the information for you, that's like coming in one ear and very easy to go out the other. However, if you do some diligence on your own work with some of the tidbits of information, I'm going to just cover this entire podcast with all kinds of little pearls, all kinds of little threads for you to all go pull on and go do your own investigatory work. 
Deep underground military bases have their roots from antiquity. People have been literally finding ways to dig in and fortify themselves and survive conflicts. Okay. The big issue in the United States that made them a little bit distinct and different was the threat of nuclear war. When the threat of nuclear war became a reality, people no longer used the same fortification styles that used to exist pre Nagasaki. You know, that once once people began to turn cities to glass, it turned into an entirely different event. And so what happened here in the United States as a protective measure in order to ensure the survivability of the country was something that was established called the continuity of government, the, the COG. So the continuity of government was established in the 1940s and 50s and, and ongoingly. And the investments that began to pour into that industry are tremendous. And this is what basically what continuity of government is, is that they, they needed a way to make sure that people have a form of leadership in place that does not get interrupted in the event of total nuclear war. If every military base, all of the political judicial centers, all of the governing authority structure that exists on the surface of the earth gets completely neutralized in a, in a massive nuclear strike, they needed a way of being able to still run the country and predominantly the military in the event of that third world war. So the way they did that is they began to dig into the earth and began to excavate massive tunnel systems and begin to build cities underneath our feet, cities of, of infrastructure, cities of every, every complexity and level, level of society that exists up here on the surface. They began to replicate down beneath their feet. And that was so that they could have a, a state government ready to operate instantly so that there wasn't a delay of service. Uh, like when you're sitting there waiting for your cell phone to connect to the call, and then it says it's looking for a signal. They didn't want any of that. They needed to be able to launch retaliatory strikes and be able to command uh, everyone from those deep underground military bases. And this is what began to give birth in places like Virginia, West Virginia, and the major hubs of it happened along the East Coast. However, a lot of that began to get relocated towards the central part of the country where I grew up there. In, in Denver, Colorado, and the surrounding area, Colorado Springs specifically. That was when I, so when I was about 12 years old, my family moved um, from the mountains of, of Arizona, Pine Top, Pine Top Sholo Lakeside, this tiny little town with a huge 5A school where all kinds of bizarre freak show stuff was going on. But when I finally got up to Colorado Springs, Colorado Springs and Denver, Colorado, you guys are like the, the central hub of the capital of the United States. And I know that's perplexing considering that we all look at the District of Columbia and all the corporation of the United States at the center there. However, the actual continuity of government's capital is the central of the United States. And that's what Denver is. This is why Denver, Denver Colorado, has had so much technology and so many of the central intelligence agency, the defense, all these alphabet soup agencies have relocated their predominant headquarters to that region. And a lot of that really got burgeoned into uh, existence in the uh, early 2000s and post the kind of recession timeframe. That was a lot of the stimulus packages that Colorado boosted up. But one of the most famous deep underground military bases in all of, of society today is what's called Fort Car uh, Fort. Hold on. Let me just shut up. Cheyenne Mountain here is the Air Force Base. If you, I'm going to share screen so you guys can just check this out because this will uh, help you have a better idea of what's going on here. So this is Cheyenne Mountain. Now, Cheyenne Mountain is a deep underground military base that's literally the entire, just outside of Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs is the second largest city in Colorado. And there, if you're just sitting downtown, you can look out at the front range of Colorado. Colorado is basically Kansas on one side, and then it's split right in the middle by the Rocky Mountains. They extend for thousands of miles in north and south of there. But they, right there is where everybody lives. The vast majority of the population centers are, are right there centered along that front foothills just in front of these, these massive 14,000-foot mountains. Cheyenne Mountain is one of these massive granite mountains, decomposing granite and what's called Pikes Peak granite. And so granite is incredibly strong. It allows you to be able to put up a very strong defensive system for nuclear attacks. So Cheyenne Mountain was one of these first 
cities that was built underground. And I know a lot of times they're, they're only going to show you, this is one of the entrances to uh, one of the doors. That is a blast door. What you're looking at there is that entire door is designed to seal off this entire compartment of this building so that there can be this continuity of government for what's called NORAD. NORAD is the the, the, the central hub of all things Space Command. Today, we'd be talking about Space Force, you know, this new wing of the United States military. Before that, everything was just junctured under the United States Air Force. And what they did is they built this center to be able to control and communicate with everybody out there in, in specifics, the air assets. So anything from a tiny little rock that's flying around, basically bigger than a meter, um, Anything that's about this big or bigger, they can track it and have been tracking it everywhere in the entire world simultaneously. All of that information gets fed into one centralized location there in Cheyenne Mountain. That is the place from which the this war was inevitably planned to be fought. The entire building rests on springs. Uh, let's see if I have that picture of that. But basically, this is a different one over there in Hawaii. This is another deep underground military base entrance. And so you'll see these hallmarked in a specific types of geology. They're looking for specific kinds of stone to be able to burrow into that. That's more conducive for it. This is out here in, in uh, Missouri. This is near a place called Carthage, Missouri. And these are civilian accessible. Whereas where I come from in Colorado, all this was military centered. Out in the Ozarks, which is another central like uh, ridge that's lifted up. It's, it's called the Ozark Plateau. Another geological feature when there's this giant plains of Kansas and Nebraska, Iowa, all of these giant plains. Well, then the Ozark Plateau lifts up and the limestone, the dolomite, the karst topography, which is very similar to what they had in Vietnam that was so conducive for building tunnels, is very conducive for building these deep underground military bases. There's a very public one that you can watch people going in and out of, which is called Springfield Underground, which is a 3 million square foot underground city. This is where many of the headquarters for places like Kraft and a lot of these food distributors have underground storage and they live there. People work there, they go underground and they live their entire day-to-day -day lives down under these little places. But this, this, is, this is a tunnel boring machine that was used by the United States Air Force in order to construct these massive tunnels systems that you can see. These are kind of the modern public version of it. The, in the 1950s, they began to patent and start utilizing nuclear fusion, a form of just rock melting the rock face itself so that you could create a, a liquid channel of rock and then harden it. So then you didn't have to reinforce it with concrete. You didn't have to put in any reinforcements. You could literally just liquefy the rock. And this is what enabled them to, to start doing that. Entire little ports and cities, like there's these tunnels that that operate from the Pacific coast out near the Seattle, Washington area that go all the way inland into, into Iowa or into Idaho and Northern Idaho. And this is where a lot of our submarine bases and deep underground military bases that, that facilitate the Navy side of things. Things operate, but NORAD specifically, the entire the entire bunker system for this whole little underground city it sits on springs, and this was designed so that during the 1950s it could survive a direct hit from a nuclear weapon by Russia. Now, my experiences was right there through Cheyenne Mountain, and so there's a, a guy named by um, my military handler at the time when I got brought up here to start working with the United States Air Force. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Lonnie Weaver, and he was a uh, a commander here at NORAD, and so he was someone who oversaw a lot of these underground projects. And the reason that that so much of this, uh, this occult and special access projects begin to, to move down beneath ground is because it allows for a level of secrecy and control when you're the guy who gets to know where people are going in and out. If you can control these single doors going in and out, you can make sure that nobody's coming into these places readily without uh, massive oversight. These are all just different facilities that you guys can see. And uh, here's another one. This is this is the NSA's one in Hawaii. This is places like Edward Snowden. You guys are familiar with the guy who brought out a lot of these leaks and, and brought this stuff forward. He was working in one of those deep underground military bases. Hawaii, I did an interview with that is called Reptilians, Military Secrets, and Hawaii's Hidden History. And I did that with some folks called Hebrew Hawaii.
and uh they they are there on the, the on Oahu and um uh, they were sharing a lot of the secrets about the military bases that are out there. There's more deep underground military bases on Hawaii than almost anywhere else in the entire uh, United States because it is a central hub for the for the military. This is another one that's a Lockheed range and underground entrance there at the end of a runway, which allows aircraft experimental X-class projects to be able to land and be able to go underground without being readily seen. Here's another one that's been utilized, a uh, little more derelict, older stuff. But a lot of this infrastructure you guys got built and put into place in the 1950s. So when you go into these, it's it literally is just, it looks like you're going into another industrial building. The military builds things to last for a long time. And so there's linoleum floors and it just looks like you're in a regular hallway with UV with the just, you know, regular lights. It's not anything that looks like so exciting. It's not sexy at all. There's nothing to be noted. There's nothing wonderful to be noticed. You can't a lot of times tell you're actually in an underground facility because a lot of the the entrances for this, you're going to be entering into a regular above ground building, and then you're going to be progressively working your way down below ground. And so it allows them a level of secrecy. Like this, these are ones that that what it looks like more above the airport, the United States Air Force Academy. There's a road up there that's called Rampart Range Road, which is a which is a public access road. But on the other side of that is that entire mountainside is the United States Air Force Academy um, property, and they they have entrances just like this, which are concealed into the granite faces of it. And so these are the ones that you start to get access into these kinds of rooms. This is what is really the underground projects teams. So when I got started working inside of these facilities, my entire life got turned upside down because I began to see a world that is completely contrary to the system of what we have when it comes to technology and when it comes to like how the world actually functions and operates. So we shared a little bit more of that in the last episode that M and I did involving things like Neptunium, superconductors, magnetic levitation trains. There's a, there's a way of moving and transporting people around and goods around that's completely different than what we had. And the reason that we don't have maglev trains, the reason we don't have high-speed trains and rail cars up here on the surface is because they don't want anybody to have access to that except for who they say they can. Because it transforms a society when you're able to move things with limitless... Um, without need for power. You don't when you don't need the same power systems that you have, it, it allows those control mechanisms to begin to break down that old world society, the petrochemical based industry that is so benefited uh, financial kingdoms like the Rockefellers and and um the Carnegies and a lot of these these societies that were established and and they are fueling this system. The petrochemical basis for our society is what has enabled so much of these overarching power controllers to rule up here. But down beneath the ground, it's a completely different currency that's under there. And the currency that's down there is, is truly secrecy. And so they they enforce these secrets explicitly. And so when I got brought down into there, I got to see that that really it's an inverse kingdom of power. And the only way that you get in and out of that kingdom is through secrets. And so if you're able to traffic in those secrets effectively, if you can broach your way into there, however, more often than not, getting out of there requires you to create what's called dead man switches. I wrote a blog post a few years ago because some people tried to kill me when my daughter, my wife was seven months pregnant with my last daughter, and I really thought that was the end of it. And uh, I wasn't going to get to hear Jubilee or anything she ever had to say. And so after that, I wrote this blog post because it was like, game on, you know, like, screw this. Some of you guys have secrets like this that could buy your way out of the underworld. Some of you guys have, some of you gals have access to these secrets. And I'm just going to tell you right now, the best thing you can do with that is broadcast them consistently broadly, as fast as you can, as readily as you can. And I understand some of you want to keep your insurance policies and keep them buried away for another time. And you share out your uh, insurance policies with other people in case you get killed or injured. However, best thing you can do with the secrets is to utilize them effectively to be able to get your way out of that system. And that was one of the ways that started getting me out of there is that I stopped being able to, I stopped working with them to keep their secrets. And I started wanting to find a way to weaponize their secrets against them so that people could get set free from the system instead of being trapped in it the rest of their life. Wow. Thank you so much for that. This is a topic I think 
we've all to some degree maybe seen a photo, but there's so many questions around, you know, what's true? Do they actually exist? What goes on down there? And you had mentioned the reptilian aspect. What are your thoughts on that part of it? And are they doing human experiments down there? Are they creating hybrids? Like what some of the rumors say, like what, what else are they hiding down there aside from some of these cartels that they're running through the tunnels? I mean, I shared, I shared a bit of the testimony of, of what I saw at this place called the church in Denver, which is a nightclub that was converted from an old Catholic church. And I was meeting with these people during what was called the uh, cannabis awards. And uh, there was a guy in there. This, it was a meeting for all kinds of people that were doing technology stuff with graphenes and stuff from uh, hemp products. And um, there was a guy who was in the sub basement. There's a, like a layer, a dance floor below the, the main dance floor in there, which is totally just like the textbook ritual room that you see under a lot of these Catholic churches. Anyways, there was this guy in there that straight up had the reptiloid features, like the iconic version of a reptilian, green, green skin, no nose, pronounced jawline, slit eyes, just, and I had to literally, I was doing security protections for a company, a data storage uh, tech startup company that was that was handling what was called a highly disruptive technology. They had a storage drive that was that on a size of your phone could store a petabyte of data. And there's a lot of people who don't want that stuff getting out there. And this was the stuff that would enable a lot of AI processing and military industrialists to be able to take this thing to a totally different level. Surveillance stayed on a continual basis because you start recording in 8K and all this other stuff. Anyway, so so I was like their 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 security team lead. And I was staring at this reptilian looking guy and had to ask my the CEO, I'm like, Charles, are you seeing this guy? He's like, oh yeah, the reptilian? He's like, yeah. And these people inside this world, you guys, you got to understand that they are aware of so many of what you and I would call or get branded as these conspiracies that are taking place. But there really are other individuals who have given themselves over to a form of genetic alteration on a completely different scale than what you and I think is normal. These are people who've been playing with genes for a long time. And because of that, they started splicing in all kinds of other genetics in order to enhance themselves and give themselves abilities that are not like the others. And really one of those is foundationally one of these parasitic relationships that can happen when you start cannibalizing, when you start to consume when you start consuming human blood, you start consuming plasmas and you start consuming a lot of the byproducts of, of the adrenal glands during stress, like, like when people start picking kidneys and pulling out stuff out of the adrenals, it, it alters them and it begins to transform them fundamentally into something other than what is entirely human. So these hybridization projects are not something to be trifled with. And what you start to encounter down there is the experimental research centers, the hubs of this. This is where the genetics labs are located. And this is what allows people to become other than just human, human 2.0, what the, the Nazis used to call Ubermensch. It was the, the backbreeding of the Aryans to this, the gods. They were trying to recreate the gods of old. They really believed fundamentally, if you cannot, if you cannot understand the fundamental root of so much of our society's architecture for the military and for the national security councils and for what is the the titans of our of our eras today we call them corporations these corporations are hands that are still servants to places like darpa the internet we're using right now is still is the created being of the advanced research and projects agency one of these deep underground research agencies for the United States military. They're giving us their 40-year-old technology. When they started bringing out this kind of information, what they do is they run like a, a test run to see if people are willing to, to swallow this pill and be comfortable with it. And when people freaked out, like when they started publishing, hey, yeah, we're doing cloning with Dolly the Sheep back in the 1990s, there was this all this 
publishing about, hey, we're doing cloning on these animals and, and people, you know, how do you feel about that? And people freaked out and they weren't like it. So they put it back down underground. However, whenever, whenever a society won't openly accept these kinds of things, what they'll do is they'll execute these, these tactics like a Fabian war, where they're going to slowly incrementally try to drive the agenda there. And this is what a lot of the ultimate agenda has been for the acceptance ideology that we just accept anything and we embrace it wholly. The ultimate goal of that is to accept this type of hybridization of people. Now, real quick, I just got to be really blunt with you guys. I believe fundamentally, if there are still components of a, of a soul within there, that these people have the opportunity and have the right to be able to receive the good news. They, they, uh, they need an opportunity to hear the truth. They need the opportunity to be able to be understood because a lot of them never had a choice in the matter. A lot of them got manipulated into this and they need an opportunity to get healing and restoration. There's going to be a continuum there. That sounds super strange, but the, a lot of people in our society today have been genetically altered. They've had genetic experimentation done through injectables that has altered them out of the image of what they were intended to be and has permanently changed them through epigenetics, meaning that they're going to pass on these, these mutations to their children and there's nothing they can do to stop it. And so we are living in an in a society that is genetically engineered into an image other than what our original intent was. This book was really important for me because I started, I grew up down in Arizona. This all started for me down in these tunnels, seeing these other beings when these people did these rituals, like it wasn't, it wasn't just so that they could like, Oh, drink blood and be all filthy and, and have sex with each other. And just grown men that wanted to have sex with boys. It was a completely other agenda. This like the, the reason the old religion exists is so that they can draw up these other beings that live in this underworld. There's a scientific version of this with the deep underground military bases. Then there's an old religion order of this. There's a completely older megalithic stuff that goes all the way back to antiquity, stuff that's been around forever, that has been buried systemically and historically buried. This is why the Smithsonian Institute in the United States was created, was to conceal the true history of our country, of, of the world. They didn't want people to understand that these advanced cultures and civilizations have been the norm all the way into antiquity. And there will be massive cataclysms and destructions and self-immolations as people turn back to this old religion where they're sacrificing humans, where they're consuming blood, and where they're willing to engage in this dark occult magic. When they embrace the Shadim, what we would say demons, these shadows, when they start, when they start inviting them in and opening the gates to them, and bringing up this other world because beneath our feet is this black inky mire. It's a real other world that exists down there. And you have one that's scientifically based it's like up in North Dakota or South Dakota. There is, there is the Fermi labs. There's these laboratories that exist with particle accelerators and with atom smashers and cyclotrons for there's tens of thousands of them. People think about CERN and they think about, Oh my gosh, they're opening portals under the temple of Apollo and they're going to open up and do all these experiments. They've been doing this stuff for decades. They've been doing this stuff for so long, and they've been meddling with these portals. They're ultimately trying to open these portals to bring in these other entities, and they're using a scientific technological version of it, but the old religion has been utilizing infanticide and child sacrifice to be able to summon these beings up to them. And so down in those tunnels, what I saw were dragons, and I know that's something that's so like out there, but there literally are dragons. I'm going to just pull up another screen here because this is just ridiculous. This is like for thousands of years, y'all, we had like a history that was like knowable. Like we actually used to be able to read books and we'd be like, oh yeah, this is what's going on. Hold on a second. Bear with me here. Oh, hold on. Give me a second. No the, the, the way that society used to be for a long time is that people understood that what we would call myths and legends were way people passed on information and preserved information so that their children wouldn't be trapped in this dumbfounded stupidity like we've been raised in. 
Oh, it's so frustrating because I grew, I grew up with this as my norm. I didn't grow up with this as like, oh, yeah, you guys are just living in some kind of fantasy world where werewolves and demons and all this stuff are crawling around in the shadows. This is reality and has been forever. And this is why people for thousands of years have carved statues of it. They made paintings of it. They've carved it into books. They've written it in their stories. They preserved it in their oral traditions. This is why this land, the United States of America, America literally means land of the plume serpent. Quetzalcoatl has been the god of this nation forever. It's the same god again. They're trying to re resurrect this plume serpent. Here we go. Let me show this for you guys. <laughs> it's just a sci-fi movie all the time. I tell people all the time, the truth is truly stranger than fiction. You're living in a society that has tried to convince you that there's something other than this. But this is, this is the way that the world operates. This is a queen's coin. Oh, it's just, they put this in front of your face. This is like a tent. Look at the size of this coin. Okay, this is the commemorative coin that the queen made. She's called the queen of beasts, right? This is literally the, uh, the queen of beasts. This is back in 2014. And this is, this is who she, her heraldry is, right? She's telling you that she is the queen over all this. This is like a hundred ounce gold coin that they made in commission for her. And if you notice how many of these are, you're like, oh yeah, normal creatures. I totally recognize these. And then you get all these hybrids, right? You got the phoenix, you got the dragons, you get the unicorns and all the rest of this. But what they're really getting at is, is what these animals used to be, right? If you go back into antiquity, just a few, few thousand years, this was the way that the world operate. Hold on a second. I'm going to flip through a bunch of these. <laughs> The dragons, okay? These are the serpent mounds. You start to analyze the archaeological excavations of what's been going on forever here. I did an interview with a guy called uh, Eric FM8, Fire Medic 8, and we, it was called the House of Dragons. And we went into a lot more detail on the serpent cults and why my family tapped into this information because they were treasure hunters. Ultimately, they dug into a bunch of these mounds and they started finding books and tomes and they found out how to engage in these rituals to draw up these serpents. This is a serpent mound that's out in, you got uh, a bunch of these. This one's in Ohio. This is the cult of the serpent. Balaji Munkar. This is one of the best books for any of, any of you who want to dig into the actual history of the world and what they used to find and how they used to summon and deal with these things, petroglyphs and everything else. That's why I have this chart back here. It's not just some fancy rainbow looking thing. This is how I can decipher all the ancient languages. And I'm trying to study through pictographic form because I grew up in Arizona where people would carve these things on petroglyphs and they would leave these markers for people so they could understand, hey, this is how you find that information. This is uh, from archive.org. You can look up that book for free. Otherwise, it's a couple hundred bucks online. But this is Quetzalcoatl, the temple of the plume serpent that's down in Mexico. The capital of Mexico was designed to be this, where they were sacrificing sometimes 40,000 to 100,000 people a day. The entire society of Central America was only given over to this deity. That entire all of the priest class that operated down there. There's a book that's called The Discovery and Conquest of Mexico, which is the firsthand account of a priest who was accompanying Hernando de Cortez when he came over the conquistadors and began to invade Central America that shares about going into these temples where these priests have their dreadlocks made of, of intermingled with blood and organs and human skins that they would wear and cannibal markets that literally the meat class for this society, the meat that they ate was each other. And these priest class, they, they were governed by human sacrifice and they'd given themselves over to this. These are, these are their iconography that they were using to try to preserve these traditions. So down in Arizona at Lake Havasu, when the city of London brought over that bridge under Robert McCulloch and, and, and uh, C.V. Ward, they were trying to bring about the resurrection of this from inside that bridge. They wanted to be able to raise up Quetzalcoatl. They wanted to have him and the, and the spirit of death who is over him, be able to come back into the United States and have his dominion reestablished in here. The reason that 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 First Amendment was or the the sorry, the the freedom of religion was 
extrapolated on in our constitution for more often than not was not to protect the religious expression that you know to be cherished and to be guarded, but it was to protect this one. This is ultimately the new Atlantis of what Francis Bacon and a lot of their prophets have been trying to bring to resurrection, which is where people are openly willing to do what is only being done in secret. Emma and the people that she has on this show are talking about this underground society that's right beneath your feet, that's just out of the corner of your eye, but that's happening day and night right in front of your face because you're blinded by these very beings. They put a spiritual veil over people's eyes. This is why when you try to talk to them about these things that are going on in reality, you're like, listen, every drop of water you drink is literally poison. And they're like, I'll have another. You know, they're like, you're like, what the heck is wrong with you guys? You're literally drinking dead. You're drinking death like continually. You think they can filter out those pharmaceuticals? You're drinking so much birth control that you can't get pregnant because you're drinking birth control on a regular basis. That's a serious problem, y'all. Like there's so much blood and death that goes into the drains. What do you think happens when they do an abortion and they cut up a human baby and they desiccate it and get rid of its blood? Where do you think that goes down your drain, down to your neighbor's drinking supply? And you wonder why our society is literally drinking in the blood. 80% of all the blood that's getting donated at these blood banks is going into pharmaceuticals that people are eating. They're cannibalizing each other on a continual basis. 20% is going to the hospital and they're like, oh yeah, we're just going to save humanity with this. All the while, the pharmaceutical industry is just designing more and more drugs on this. But this is Quetzalcoatl and this is the very same deities that have been ruling and reigning over this nation for a long time. They were driven nearly into extinction. A man named Charles Finney. Y'all, you, you want to read a book for a second? Just hold on a second. I'm just going to stab this in the throat. Charles Finney was a man. There was in the, some people used to fight this crap and they used to lay down their lives and literally go to war against these secret societies, these oath keepers. Let me just put it a different way. The oath keepers, secret societies got too much of like, ooh, sexy involved in it. It's filthy, disgusting people that want to do all kinds of perversions. It's perverts. It's cults of perverts who want to protect and cover up other perverts from doing sycophantic evil that's what that's what these secret societies are and they masquerade and they balance it out you're like oh yeah we're gonna we're gonna do balance our, our good deeds over on this side with our evil deeds on this side so, you know we're like the shriners we're gonna dedicate all of these these funds towards these children's and we're gonna go ahead and rape and consume their flesh out on another time and we're gonna balance the scales of gayatu and he's gonna accept us into his cult it's disgusting but this is literally they almost got driven into extinction by people that were willing to expose their secrets. They had all these infiltrators. I love double agents. Okay. They had all these guys who went in and joined fraternal organizations with another motive in mind. So savage. They were salty and sneaky. They would go in and they would document all of these oaths that they were saying. And then they would come out and publish their rites and their rituals in manuals and in books and in flyers. And they started awakening society to what these people actually were doing to this other agenda that was taking place to these serpent cults that were trying to resurrect these old gods. And they literally almost eradicated them, drove them out of our country. It, they came so close to being able to do it. They accomplished driving them underground again because they were trying to rise up again. And these were, they were so effective at doing that. Charles Finney wrote some incredible books on it and, and was one of those people who was speaking out against it. And I encourage you to, to, to seek it out. These are still preserved to this day. One of the things my dad did was to take me back down to Mexico and to New Mexico, and I got my scuba, I got my open water scuba certification. And then one of the things he was hell bent on intent of taking me was onto these temples to go into these these little. They have these little at the tops of a lot of these towers. They have this special chamber room where they would drink and they would cut the heart of a person out of their body and they would eat it. The high priest would eat it and they would drink their blood. And this is a way they would pass on this this life force through the priest class and ultimately to the king class. And these are all still preserved today. You can go down there today. This is literally the the temple of the plume serpent. These exist all over the United States. You guys. It's not like this is just Mexico. 
all over America, these mounds are everywhere. And under these mounds is the same kind of architecture. It's the same gods doing the same kind of worship. And, and now this is in literally Mexico City, one of the most populous places in Mexico. That's literally where the, the, the temple of the plume serpent used to be. And this is what uh, one of the renditions of what it used to look like. But anyways, the reasons this came in, these are other hybrids that have been around forever, lion creatures and all the rest of it. The lion men of Moab, you ever read about these things in the Bible? Anyways, this stuff just absolutely fascinates me because people used to carve this into stone. They were literally lion hybrids. They've been around forever. The hybrids have been around forever. They just got driven underground because our society is like, we're not going to tolerate that anymore. And they're like, okay, we're going to surface eventually. But these, these beings literally would be conjured during these rituals and they would come up and they would consume the life of the, the sacrifice. And then they would speak to people, sometimes telepathically, but more often than not, they literally spoke in the tongue of Nahash, of Nahash. That's a way of saying Hebrew or serpent in Hebrew. This, this is a different language called a twilight language. It's these other languages that these things speak to people. And they would literally speak to these leaders in this room and give them marching orders so that they would then go carry these out on the physical upper world. And this has been the communal exchange that's been going on for thousands of years between the old religion and their high priests and then ultimately the kings, the corporations. This is how they're able to get these advanced technologies. This is how they're able to put themselves in positions of power because there is a driving mechanism, an ancient hand, a black hand that's guiding and directing these things. Halal ben Shahar. These are the shot callers that, that have been in their own prison cells, the fallen watchers. Simyaza and Azaz Azazel and Gadriel. These, these are these ancient evils that have been around, these hierarchy that are still passing this information on to their assets. And this is literally the, the kingdom of darkness that we're wrestling with day and night. This is the city of London, who's the architect of the entire financial empire of the world. They still invoke these gods to this day because this is the masters of, of who this is the ones who truly call the show. And this is the ones that I've been battling with my entire life and why I want people to have an understanding. We can get free. This is the book I was going to reference earlier, which is written by Josh Darnell. John Darnell. This is not available online. I cannot find it anywhere. I'm working on trying to create it into a PDF so people can have it. But this is called, the What Did Jesus Mean? The Gospel to Every Creature. Good news for Nephilim, transhuman, enhanced humans, and anyone else who is the result of genetic experimentation. John Darnell. This subquote is, The only way to view someone who is not 100% genetically human is to see a human being whose genetics have been modified. Then you can tap into God's heart for redemption. This is some of the stuff that foundationally was critical for me to be able to understand that there's still an opportunity for redemption for me. There's this bloodline tracing that happened for me that goes all the way through the Orsinis and then back to the Babylonians. And they believe literally they're inhibitors. They're carriers of the seed of the serpent. They literally believe because they drink this black blood of these serpents that they get possessed by them and they have the divine right to rule as kings on this earth. And that was in my blood. And so I believed I was cursed. I was anathema. I had never had a right for redemption and I could not be transformed into an image of just a mortal man, that I was destined to be one of these other things, these other creatures. And it wasn't until hearing people like this and testimonies like this, that in the, in the gospel of Mark, he literally said, go therefore into all the nations, preaching this good news to every creature. It was that word creature, which is not person, not man. He literally said creature that gave me hope and why I still today want to advocate for the hope of these hybrids, that these people, these beings still have a right to life and a right to an opportunity to hear the truth being spoken. Because like you, they've been beguiled since their birth, since their conception, no matter what they, what womb they came from, whether a laboratory or some kind of woman, listen, you still have an opportunity for healing and redemption. And you have a testimony that the world needs to hear, whether they've abominated you beyond what you believe is your hope and your desire. But this is what you were born for is to be able to find freedom, find a purpose, find a mission, and be able to serve in, in the, in the true kingdom of truth. Amen to that. 
I'm going to dig just a little bit more into what you're talking about before we move on to some of the other questions, because this really is fascinating. And I haven't, I haven't covered this stuff on my podcast before you brought up the adrenal gland and the blood a few times. And that's something that I personally get asked about a lot and I'm certainly not qualified to answer. So I wanted to see if you could speak on behalf of that. Why is blood so important? Are there side effects that are desirable that happen when it's consumed? Is it addictive? Can you talk a little bit on behalf of that for people? Because that's that's another thing that gets thrown into the conspiratorial side of this. Um, but I, I think it's a really big piece to the puzzle that gets grossly misunderstood by society. Yeah. There's a... The life is in the blood and it's fundamental to it. We think our life is linked to brain cells and neurological responses, but when you let the blood out of a body, that's when they die. There's, there is no, that's what the life. It's all about that. Uh, the fundamental basis they need, they need the blood to survive. They're dying perpetually. This, this other stuff that gets this lust, this lust for power and the lust for immortality consume people. When you get to a stage of wealth where your basic needs are met, you know, you're like, oh, okay, I'm pretty content, pretty happy in a sense. How much money is enough? You know, a little bit more. Basically, everybody thinks this. Okay. It's a trap. It's a rat race. And the love of money is the roots of all kinds of these evils. And what happens fundamentally is as people are willing to compromise, com- Compromise is fundamentally the, the currency for this kingdom of darkness. And every one of you who is willing to compromise in order to climb that ladder, you're being tested to find out, okay, how much are you willing to compromise? And there literally is a gradient of to how much are you willing to truly compromise? How, how dark are you willing to go? Because this is an inverse pyramid that y'all are climbing. Like you're climbing into the pits of hell. You're not climbing into the top. You're climbing into the depths of deceit. That's all the only one way direction that this is going. What happens is as that compromise gets worse, you're willing to start to engage in sexual acts with people that are not your norm. You start to get more and more deviant. You start to get more and more corrupted. It ultimately leads down into these places where people are consuming blood. And it's not, I'm not talking about like cups. I'm not talking about people are slitting the throats of people and putting a cup under there and they're all drinking that. Sometimes that happens. What I'm talking about is there are products that are, that are, that are extracted from the plasmas of blood, the proteins. The majority of blood is basically water and plasma. It's these proteins and these other compounds that are found within the blood that are there during specific types of experiences, okay? When you are feeling love, when you are genuinely feeling love, like real authentic love, your body produces something that's a binder, okay? Like it literally is like one of the, the, the names for this is called oxytocin. Oxytocin, they'll call it the love molecule. And what ha- happens like when you, when you snuggle, okay? Let's just call it that. When you snuggle, you get intimate. You kiss somebody and you feel their lips near yours. You feel their nose near yours. When you exchange breath, 
when you begin to experience that, what gets produced in you, if it's a positive thing, if this is something that's mutual, if this is reciprocity taking place, what, what gets stimulated in your body is the production of oxytocin. What happens when oxytocin gets released, this is why you feel high. This is why you feel good. You're like, I love this person. I really like this. I want to do this more. In fact, I actually want to do it all the time. This would be the best thing we could do forever. That feeling, that like, oh man, yeah, right? We call it love drunk. It's a real thing because you're literally drunk on a physical camp compound that's being excreted in your body. That's a positive thing. That's designed, you know, when you get that released at the highest doses, when you're breastfeeding your infant. Okay. When like my, my wife, I've got twin newborn babies in there. My wife's breastfeeds them. What happens when she's breastfeeding is that that literally gets released in huge quantities in her and in them when they're bonding like that. This is why the maternal bond is foundationally the most critically important one that can take place and why breastfeeding specifically is so critical for bonds of of attachment, right? I studied attachment psychology in college because that was the first classes I ever took in psychology where it actually felt like this is right. This is a model of understanding how human beings are, how persons operate amongst each other, where we identify and look for ways of, of creating healthy attachments and dealing with areas where it got broken. And, and one of my professors was amazing at dealing with this and the power of vulnerability that really inspired me and encouraged me to be, bare, like you said, to bear your soul. She shared how potential potential, how powerful it is when someone lays themselves bare, that you literally are releasing this in your body, what, what should have been there. I had that so systemically cut. I had these other mothers, these cult mothers, these, I hadn't, I didn't know who my mom was. There's constant confusion and exchanging of who was my mom and who I was so that that bonding agent, that oxytocin was never able to establish except on somebody that they wanted it to go to. And so there is this powerful, beautiful force that's designed in us on one of these tiny compounds to unleash this locking in of what our identity is and who we should relate to. Now, if that is not given to somebody and in its place during those moments of bonding, you instead, right as they're bonding and that oxytocin is flowing, you invoke trauma, you invoke shock, you invoke fear, and you start to create this destabilization, this dis this fracturing, you start to release norepinephrine. Like this is like the precursors for adrenaline and, and for so many of these epinephrine, these other compounds that the body begins to release cortisol, these, 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 this endocrine system takes over to fight, flight, or freeze. And you start to try to find a way to get out of this system. You try to fight back or you panic and you freeze or you dissociate. And when those events take place, when somebody's enduring that trauma, it releases these other compounds, which are like the antiquity. They are the ancient force of, of, food for these other beings and for people that are on the quest for immortality. And it's as awful as you can imagine. And in Lake Havasu, Arizona, what they literally did is they took people and they would pike them. Okay. They would, they would put IVs into them and then traumatize them and abuse them. And they would extract blood from them as it was happening. Sometimes they would extract it directly from the, the, adrenals. Sometimes they would extract it from areas in the brainstem. They had different ways of getting it. However, more often than not, they would literally just drain them of their blood while they were had headphones on, while they're watching screens and images of people being raped. Whatever version of it that was needing to be used to cause the most distress, that's what was being utilized. And that literally was being extracted out and then spun out into different compounds and extracted in a laboratory there in Lake Havasu City. Those little vials they would sell on the black market in this underground market to people that wanted cups of immortality. So they're not going around thinking like, okay, 
This is something that politicians have been caught with in airports. And they're like, what are all these little vials that you guys have here? Right. And they literally would have a silver lining to them. They would look sometimes like liquid silver that they would be drinking. And you've got to understand the reason that this facade is able to go on is because these people don't know that's what they're actually doing. A lot of them just think it's another pharmaceutical product, just like you guys going to your pharmacist and you're getting another drug that you don't have a clue what's actually in there. And you're like, whatever the white robe priest says, I'm going to take. These people are under the same strong delusion and they're willing to take whatever whatever their drug dealer pharmacist might say, this is what's going to help you, right? One of the uh, neurotropics uh, form of it that was being utilized is stuff like the military has the, the, the best chemists in the world, right? Before you guys get your street drugs, the United States military has been giving it to their pilots since the 40s and 50s. Like the best forms of methamphetamine and stimulants and Adderall and all these other uppers or downers that have ever existed went through those guys before you ever got your hands on it. Same with these compounds. And it's these compounds that literally, when people consume them, aging, the reversal of aging truly takes place. They take the, they take, they, they literally cut the foreskins off of babies while they're alive and they turn those into beauty and anti-aging products. This is still used today. Public mainstream news. This isn't some kind of theoretical kind of something questionable thing. Like this is like Sandra Bullock's talking about this on Ellen DeGeneres show. They're like, it's great. Just rub the baby's skin cells all over yourself. Just rub the dead babies on you. This is nothing new under the sun. People have been doing this for thousands of years. People that are consumed with vanity, this goddess that's ruining their identities, making them think that who they are needs some kind of beauty mask to conceal their identity. They were made perfect. And it's everyone else that's making them die on a daily basis to this depression, to this cursing of their identity that's making them think that there's something other than that that needs to reverse aging. It's insane. But this is what literally people are willing to sell their souls, their mind, their energy, their will, their emotion, their intellect, their time. They're literally willing to give their lives up so that they can have this thing to try to alter them themselves to try to extend their life. And this is their currency. So it does not always look like them bathing in blood, like you would see in some kind of filthy horror movie. Like they are genuinely buying a product and they're getting it from what is a reputable source so that they can take a stimulant that allows them to go six days without sleep and to operate. It is the limitless drugs that these people are operating on. The United States military had one that was called New Vigil before it was called New Vigil, where you would take this stuff and you felt like your entire brain opened up and you could just crank for days. You're like, well, why would I stop taking this stuff? Because you have no idea what's in it. You have no idea what you just put inside your body, but you've compromised yourself so terribly. And these after effects begin to show up in your liver, your pancreas, your, your ureters, and your, your like your body shuts down. I started pumping out 21 kidney stones a year. I was dying because of the consumption of these pharmaceuticals and of these drugs and of this blood from when I was young was killing me in my in when I was 18 and 19 and 20 I was dying like when Chelsea met me I used to pee blood and pass kidney stones constantly I was in excruciating pain all the time because you can't tap into this there is no cup of immortality for us to drink there's a tree of life that we can we can take but it is guarded fiercely and you're not going to drink of that until the father you're not going to eat of that until the father says otherwise Thank you so much for that. It's always helpful when somebody has a firsthand account. And I appreciate you answering that because that, like I said, I've gotten asked that a lot and, and it's been something that I've wanted to bring up on the show. So my strategy, my loose strategy, I should say, for a lot of these questions that people asked was I tried last episode and for people listening, just so you know, if you missed it, I tried to tie in a lot of the earlier questions about childhood. And this time I wanted to focus a little bit more on the, the teenage to adult side of it, but we didn't get through all the childhood questions and there was a couple more good ones in here. So I thought I'd start with that and then we could sort of move our way into the, some of the periodization that you talked about last time a little bit more in depth, Nathan. So 
one of the questions that somebody asked was in regards to that periodization, is there an age that a child is required to make that first killing if they're in that Delta assassin programming? Is there some sort of, um, I guess, structure to that? And then there's an event that happens or how does that work? Um, I thought that was a pretty good question, but it's, it's definitely, you know, I'm sure that there's strategies to it that, that we're not privy to that, that you might be. Like the age of the of first kill. I don't know that there's a standardized age for when that is. It's generally going to be based off when the, uh, resistance is over and the, uh, willingness is there such a dirty word when there's a when they have a big enough why and they figured out what's the what's the best lever to push on this child in order to get them to do killing once once that has been breached then their first killing is going to be instituted or architected over their life sometimes like for me that happened when i was six years old down in in arizona and it was like a man they do this like mockery of it's it, it for me it was a a blending of two different things like there was a need to go through your first kill your first kill is so important because it bonds you to death like an actual i'm not talking about some kind of theory ethereal death floating around thing i'm talking about like an actual living like general like a general of an army who is death like literally you become a death dealer like it's not some thing I'm talking about like you're in a covenant now. Like when you cross that door, so many people have no idea what's responsible. What happens on the other side of that threshold when you when you take another life? And I'm not talking about some kind of like where you push a button and somebody dies on the drone strike. I'm talking about the intimacy of killing, of like staring somebody in the eyes while you take their life, while you spill their blood. That moment happened with for me was a killing that was made to look like Jesus, like a guy that was brought in who was an abuser, but dressed like your iconic Jesus, you know, with like the blue and the white robe, like the, every version of Jesus you've ever seen. And they literally had him torn apart, like beard ripped out, torn apart, desiccated, like destroyed. And like people, children, people were made to be doing this. They were like, we were hopped up on this rage. And it was this like environment of like revenge, Revenge was the biggest motivator for me. Revenge was the biggest motivator for those boys down there. Like this was, this was what was our driving force was like, we wanted to fight back. And it was like, we were raised with this model of like, kill like dogs. Okay. I was raised in like the, you have two different forms of canine training. Okay. One where you put them in the worst environment ever. You neglect them, you abuse them, you starve them. You never let them know peace. The other one is like you, you breed them with the best genetics. You give them the best training, the best food, the best, the best environmental conditions that's conducive towards their training program. Okay. Those are basically it for the, the Delta worlds of where I came from. Those were the only two models. Like my dad left the financial empire to go prove himself that he could raise up an empire down in Arizona at Southern California and Arizona. They chose the tact for me and my structure on the abuse side, on the dark magic side, on the left hand magic, on the Crowleyism, on all of this debasement of the soul that I would draw from the abyss, that I would be an, uh, a part of this kingdom of this these archons, that I would I would consume the darkness and then funnel it out. 
That was the past. So I was starved for attention. I was starved for family. I was starved for relationship. I was starved for, for humanity. And so I was like a beast, literally like a beast, like a canine in this world. All I knew was violence. All I knew was, was a desperation to get out of the cage, to rip the throat out of the monster that was in the room right there, tearing apart my friends. All I wanted to do was to get out and tear them apart. And so it was like, they finally let all of us away. I was the youngest in that room. There was a lot of seven-year-olds and nine-year-olds. There was a 13-year-old in there who was just out of his mind. And, and they tortured this guy, like tortured him. And then they put him on a stinking crucifix on a wooden cross and they drove nails through him. And then they had me come over to do the killing blow to, to pierce through his heart, to pierce through his, his life. And there's this, there's this, you're now in to something that you're not even you're, you're, you've left the land of the living. And now you're a son of death. And so what else is there in life? You know, what else is there? You sit there and you're like, okay, I, I, I felt relief. I felt freedom, which is disgusting for people to think, but like, I finally felt released. It's like all I'd known was pressure. And I finally had a handler give me release and release for me only ever came when they gave me a green light. They're like, now you get your green light. And the green light was only ever architected around death, was only ever allowed out under very specific contained conditions, like the shock collar on the neck, the handler ready to joint you back in. That was where it, it happened for me. Now, the other children that were in the room, I don't know when they had their first moments. I saw other children at different ages. Very rarely was it quite so young unless somebody else was kind of helping them do it. But more often than not, it tended to be more at seven, eight, nine years old. This is when the, the neuroplasticity of the mind is the most amnesiac. Like the, the, the years when a child is most uh, easy to manipulate really are between six and nine years old. And so that's when I saw most children being forced into that environment to, to engage in the killing blow. Oh, my gosh. That's so just awful to even comprehend being so young and having no free will for something like that and having to witness that. Um, one of the questions that people asked that I thought would be good to sort of segue into given this is what happens to the bodies of these people who are sacrificed and especially the more renowned people that maybe you would go on a mission for the, the politicians or these people that are more well-known, like what happens to those bodies of the deceased? They're fed to pigs. I'm not talking about animals. This is like a, a product that's rendered down, like meat rendering. I'm like, this is like a, a butcher, you know, literally. They butcher them up and they, they, uh, they, they, they grind them up and they use them as a meat product. And not always down in Lake Havasu, they had a facility for that. Otherwise, people are buried in the desert. People are dropped in Lake Havasu City Lake. But out 
when you're on a mission, when you're out and you have to dispose of someone, you have cleanup teams specifically who that's their job to come in and do that. They're generally tasked with, um, these are like your body, your body baggers and your draggers, like morticians there. You would be, you get connected. The way this underworld facilitates a lot of this is like the Reynolds family was one of the biggest owners of crematoriums and funeral homes. And that was their way that they could have that. The other two big places they invested in were veterinary offices and dental offices. Dental offices are very conducive for programming and and dealing with people that are uh, an asset out of containment. And veterinarian offices are a way that you could get medical attention um, without people being able to maybe know as much. You can get anesthesia drugs there. You also have on some of them, not as much today, they used to have more crematoriums attached to them, incinerators that were needed to be able to dispose of the bodies. Those are the main methods that were utilized overall was to get the bodies disposed of. That was not my compartment. That was not my department for lack of a better word. I didn't like that side of it. I didn't, I wanted to do the killing blow. I didn't want to, I didn't want to process. I didn't want to to do that. But when necessity, when it was a necessity, you make the body look as, especially if you have a high value target that you're going after, and you know, this person has to be what's called an open death, meaning that their death is going to be publicized. It's notarized. You need to make sure that that body looks as though it died of natural causes on one side of the equation, or that it needs to die in a way that's explainable car accidents. You don't kill people almost ever with a car accident. You kill them and then you dress up their body to look like they died from that. This is when a neck is broken. This is when there's swelling on the brain. This is why brain stems are an area of target. Like why, why you utilize knives it is to separate spinal column. The central nervous system is the major target when it comes to like actual assassinations. It's not, you're not looking to wound somebody. You're not willing to kill somebody. You're looking to instantly stop them and incapacitate them. Not some kind of like, oh, you, sh- you stab them in the heart. None of this. You don't, you can shoot somebody in the heart. They're going to run around for 30, 40 seconds. They can, they can still shoot and kill people and fight back and do all kinds of stuff during that time frame. You're trying to dis- incapacitate them instantly. And so you're, you're separating their ability for their body to function anymore. And so if you, if you learn how to use blades very precisely, you can turn people off very quickly and, and you can do it in a way that's very concealable. This is why needles and picks, ice picks are utilized because you, you can conceal that. If you inject a whole lot of air into people's veins with a hypodermic needle and a whole lot of air, it, it, it kills them very quickly, very fast. And it's something that's not very detectable. Morphine is generally the most commonly utilized one because you can inject people with morphine and it's not generally detectable. It's the same way hospice kills people to this day. You stop people's hearts really easily with an overdose of morphine. And it's really not something that people are going to scan or look from. Otherwise you're using barbiturates and alcohol in a, in a combination. If you, if they have any history whatsoever of having drug or alcohol use, you're running down that path. You're going to make them OD. Okay. And then it's something that's just, oh yeah, another person just died from an overdose. Oh, another person fell out of a building. You know, they're like, oh yeah, they were suicidal potentially. You know, you start to, then, then, then this is where the other guys who are like black hat hackers, they go in and they plant evidence to make it look like suicide notes, rantings of, of some kind of madman or somebody that's gotten delusional. They're going to arrest them and put them in a psych ward hold for 72 hours when they're 15. And then later on when they do die from suicide by cop or whatever version of it, they want to say when they do die of suicide, they're like, oh yeah, see, they had these mental health disorders. This is the way our society scrubs this up. And these are all, honestly, these all work in different compartments. You don't, you when you're the when you're the when you're the lone wolf, you don't work with these guys. Like you don't work with them. They don't know you. You are a ghost. They don't want to know you. You don't want to know each other. Plausible deniability is everything. Compartmentalization is everything. So you have people that that's their job. They're surgeons. They change and alter bodies, and then we'll drop them. Like, and a lot of this got birthed out of special operators, guys who go work overseas who are like on black operations, meaning that it's not public information. Who get killed? They can't be known that they died in Cambodia. They're like. 
oh yeah, so we're obviously operating Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand during the Vietnam War, but we can't have anybody know that that guy died in Thailand. So instead, we're going to ship him back, have his body go through a launderer who's going to change and, and disfigure him to make it look like he died in a car crash, and we're going to dump his body at, at you know in Munich. And we're going to be like, oh, yeah, he was back on base and he died, uh, you know, on drunken driving and stuff like that. That is more so how these things are done. Like my grandfather, Bruce Reynolds, this guy who is this illusory character in my life who I never got to met, but died the day my mother found out she was pregnant with me. Allegedly, I never found his gravestone, by the way. I think he's a guy who potentially got out. Who knows? Anyways, they said he was he was killed. He ran himself under a semi that day and uh, killed himself. Right. This is what they said. You start to dig in at any time these accidents take place. Y'all like I'm of a sound mind, by the way. I have no intention to kill or harm, harm myself or anybody else. So I just want to make that clear for the record. These are things people have to state so that a, if people get suicided, you understand this is how it operates. But more often than not, that's literally how it used. I have a chapter in here. Um, oh, I hate it. But this section if you guys want to see what it really looks like at a ritual and how they dispose of this stuff, I go into a lot more detail. I don't want to read it. I don't like reading it. I don't like talking about it. I do, but I don't. Uh, I do. I, I am willing to, but I don't want to. This stuff, um, it's under part It's under part six, which is called The Inner World, The Dodge Viper, and Secreted Away. And I go into a lot more detail of what it looked like on the ritualistic side of that, where people were literally carved up, cut up, and then dragged out in, in uh, garbage bags. And then they were put through these incinerators and passed on, but otherwise they're generally consumed in a horribly horrific way. And this is why a lot of people kept pigs. Like my aunt growing up used to keep this big pot belly pig and you could feed a, pip, a body to a pig and they will eat everything, everything and dispose of it very quickly. So those are some of the ways. Wow. So what's the difference between military and assassin training? That was another question. You answered it a little bit um, with this answer. Could you go a little bit deeper into that? Uh, assassin training is invisible warfare as opposed to military training is like overt warfare. You put on a uniform, you're supposed to operate under the codes of military justice. You're supposed to operate under Geneva conventions. There's all these parameters. There's this order following things. Whereas assassin training was a, a, a form of autonomy. That was what appealed to me so much. So I wanted freedom. And this, this was supposedly the way that I got freedom was, was hunting people. And that was the only way I was ever out, let out and led, led out to be exemplary. Otherwise, I was kept confined continually. And so assassin training was multidisciplinary. So in the United States military, they have what's called your MOS, which is like your job. That's your function. You're going to get trained up through your advanced, your advanced training school. You're only going to have basically that job. Everybody goes through a basic combat training and then to be a soldier, an infant, a soldier overall. However, it's then broken down in special, into specializations. The United States military, the army has 11 Bravos. These are infantrymen. Okay, that's their job. They can then branch into different jobs later on, but generally they're going to stay in that role. You have people that are artillerymen. You have people that are support supply specialists. You have people that are chefs. You have people that that's like literally their world operates around that function. When you deal with assassin training, what you're dealing with so much more is the ability to be invisible, to be a criminal for all intents and purposes, how to, to live a life of being background noise, how to, how to blend in and be a chameleon in all your environments, how to learn how to use um, the art of social engineering to, to work your way into a group, to be, to be able to infiltrate and get past people's defenses, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, to be able to get in with them, to be able to get them to let their guards down. So you can deliver a, a killing blow, plant evidence, extract evidence, extract people. You're, you're, you're made to be a ghost. And that's fundamentally very different than what the United States military has this kind of public hoorah, hoorah kind of feeling, camaraderie, brothership. Whereas in the, the assassin training, you're never allowed to bond with anybody because anybody could become your next target. You may be literally best friends with the guy that you've been hanging out with for the last two years and you get a text message that 
tells you that this is your next target and you shoot them in the head, right? And you walk out of the room. Like this is this is kind of how these functions operate. You can't ever have these bonds and these attachments. And this is why Russ Dizar wrote this book on the Black Awakening. It's understanding there's a different kind of thing that takes place with these back personalities, with these subsets of of identities that are that are made to be capable of doing multidisciplinary work, whether that's running a vehicle, whether that's running an aircraft, whether that's dealing with digital closets and communications, you have to be able to handle all of these different things that come your way. Whereas in the military, it's very compartmentalized towards a single area. What types of things are specialized in the assassin training? Is that more, say, for example, are there certain people that are in these programs that specialize in specific weapon types or specific types of martial arts or combat training, or is it more just everybody does everything and you become skilled in a plethora of different things? No, because some, some people are just going to get assassin training so that they can go out and do that as one of the things they do. Otherwise, maybe their main function for a group is being a mule, being a prostitute. But it doesn't take a lot to teach somebody how to kill somebody. It's four pounds of pressure to puncture the human skin. It's not a lot. Right. So it's more so teaching people how to be able to dis- to dispose of the resistance to killing. That's the fundamental basis of all of it. You have to get people who are capable of not having that hesitancy. You can kill any fundamentals to it is you can kill anybody if you're absolutely willing to die. If you're absolutely committed to, to death as an inevitability, you can kill anybody. I don't care how protected they are. There's no one on the face of the earth that can hide from somebody who's wholly committed to giving their life up in the act of going after them and pursuing them. There's there's no amount of protection, protective agents that you can deploy around you. You can get to anybody, no matter where they are fundamentally. It's just a matter of time, resources, and intelligence strategies. This is all it takes. People have talents in certain areas that make them more apt towards weapon systems like you're talking about there's definitely guys like i had somebody who i met a year a year ago uh, at passover who was a force recon marine he was a sniper that was his deal he loved looking through optics and killing people through that he used all kinds of other tools at times however that was his platform he lived around that platform he decimated people all over this world under force recon publicly privately he was a force of deafening destruction of people that came around him. Those guys operate on a totally different thing. I'm not the guy with the greatest shot. They have a totally different thing. I like being up close and personal, which meant I had this pronation towards edged weapons. Edge weapons was everything to me. I thought that was the best way. I thought my teeth were the most effective tool that I could use to rip out someone's throat. I personally gravitated towards that form of killing. Other people have a resistance to that, that they can't broach, they can't get past, and they're going to be used to do things, to, to inject things, to smear rags over people's faces, to knock them out, anesthetize them and drag them out of there and then kill them in other kinds of means to make them look like they died with a hooker on them, all this other stuff. Everybody has a little different aptitudes. And so it's catered towards that. This is why a handler is not, it's not some kind of a guy waving hypnotic rings around all the time. It's somebody that is bonded to the person that knows the person that is, that has befriended the person and understand what drives them because fundamentally people's self will is the most powerful tool that you can have to get them willing to engage in this stuff. So, so smaller, shorter statured people are capable of infiltrating in a different way than a big fit, muscular looking guy. And this is why women and children are utilized as assassins for a lot longer in the teams because it allows them the ability to be uh, disarming. People are a lot less scared of a little child that's playing around and poking them with stuff than they are with a big, scary buff guy who's walking around and poking them with stuff. That makes sense. Thank you so much for answering that. The next question, um, what is it like to hunt humans 
What would a typical assignment look like from start to finish? And can you give any examples? It's um, it's the greatest hunt there is. I mean, especially if they know. It's not a... If you have like a, a real a real hard target, somebody that's fortified themselves, you have people that that know you're coming. There's three levels to it. It's like they they have absolutely no idea that anything's coming their way. Or they have some kind of idea that there could be a threat out there. And then there's somebody who absolutely knows people are coming for them. Those are like the scales of of what it is that, that about, this is what it takes to know how to go about your plan. Cause it's, it's fundamentally different. I've never hunted animals, animals. I, I hunt fish underwater. I like to spear fish underwater. Otherwise I don't hunt animals. I've tried, I've gone out there with people that like to shoot animals and stuff. I just, it's, there's, there's nothing that compares to it. There's just not, there's no greater adrenaline rush on the face of the earth. And I know this is super perverse, but whatever, screw off. It's, like I'm freaking trying to hunt people down that literally rape children. Like I've watched these guys, some of these guys, I literally watch rape children in high definition, not, not some kind of like, Oh yeah. Live watch them do it live rape children. Okay. Then literally I got a green light to go after them. Frick. Yeah, man. All day and night. There's no greater exciting thing on the face of the earth than to go after somebody else that has the ability to, to, to fight back mentally, emotionally, spiritually, who has their own, way to wage their own war there's nothing more thrilling on the face of the earth because you get an opportunity to dismantle a demon like an actual a shadow walker like you get to go for the throat of this beast system and you finally get your hands on them you finally get the ability to be vengeance incarnate on them you get the ability to tear out their throat and spit in their face and defecate on them and make them know what it feels like to be powerless for a moment you know, like there's no amount of it that's enough. I'll tell you, it's a stinking bad drug. It's a bad drug. You get hooked on it super bad, super bad. Not everybody does. Some people are like, I'm not really that into it afterwards. You know, they get into their first kill and some of them break and they never come out of it. I'm like, they never recover. They go through that thing and they're out forever. They cannot recover from it mentally. Others get in there and they're like, that's the greatest relief I've ever had in my life. It was great. It was freedom to me, not for me. But for the victims, I fundamentally understood that every one of these people I snuffed out was an opportunity for one child, maybe thousands. Maybe this individual had thousands and thousands of victims. I don't know. But I am absolutely certain that every single time I went after a true predator, like a true predator, like they had a history of so many skeletons in their closets and so many people that covered it up around them. These, these are the secondary people that I like to go after was the people that covered it up. And eventually I stopped wanting to just go after the, the abusers and I started wanting to go after the perpetrators of the conspiracy of silence because I, I I learned very quickly that the only reason these guys keep popping up everywhere because I would find I would find priests right these I would find priests that were in these parishes these Catholic churches who were supposed to be my point of contact a guy who was supposed to give me orders right and these were the people who families members would come to in their closets and tell them this man has been raping my son who's five years old. And they would know this and they would, instead of 
getting rid of the guy and turning him over and having him be devoured, they would move him away from that family and they would move him into another one. And I saw this happen in the Catholic church. I saw this happen in the Christian church. I saw this happen in the corporate controlled media. I saw this happen in every little echelon of everywhere I went in this filthy, disgusting society that we live in where people are walking around like, oh, it's a beautiful day out, isn't it, Jim? You betcha. I'm like, Screw you guys. They're freaking destroying the lives of the innocent every freaking day of your life. And you all sit around like it's some kind of funny thing. Ha ha. It's in movies. Let's go watch the next movie and just ha ha laugh about it and be entertained by it. And I'm like, you guys could be fighting a war and eradicating this evil. Like if there was no greater relief in my life than when I finally got to stalk them, like I finally got to put on darkness as a garment and go after them and conceal myself in their closets and underneath their beds bed like the monsters that they would do. They play these sycophantic games of traumatizing the child before they do the act. Like it's just so freaking disgusting how often they try to get this rise out of them. They, they get, they sexually are stimulated off of dread and fear of children. Like they are so evil, like actually in, possessed by evil that the only way they find sexual pleasure is from the traumatization of children. Like this is such an unutterable darkness that these people, you it's it's a joy to play mind games on them and to make them feel dread, dread, like fear that that grips them in the depths of their being that rips out their spinal column and shows it to their face before they die. Like that level of systemic torture when you're using a little come along to ratchet out their spine in front of them and listening as their spine is crunching and breaking under the tension and watching their face and documenting this so that every other pervert someday has an opportunity to understand this is what happens when you participate in satisfying your lust. Like I believed I would document a lot of this stuff and film it because I believed that there was going to come this day where this would get released, where what would actually get out was not all the kitty porn sycophantic and the pedophiles would be like, we're going to welcome them into society. You guys got to give us rights just like everybody else. I thought the day would come when they would play this type of film and it would put the fear of God back into them. People used to have dread because there used to be something called public executions. And you know what you do? It's a very valuable tool to a society when you publicly execute people in horrifically barbaric ways so that they understand this is the consequences for engaging in such sycophantic, disgusting behavior. You want to participate in here? Not in our kingdom. Get the heck out of here. Like they used to drive away these oath-keeping societies, the Bavarian Illuminati. The reason they eradicated them from their country was because these guys would go and engage in this level of darkness and then infiltrate academics and societies of they would infiltrate the religious order. They would infiltrate the military. They would infiltrate the political order. And they would go in and start to change the agenda to facilitate their other brothers being able to come in and engage in this type of depravity openly. And so societies as a whole would learn about this and they would rise up and drive this out of there. And then they would bring these guys out to the streets cut off their balls in front of everyone and choke them to death with it. They would stack tires like down in Mexico, the way they dealt with that, they'd stack them in a ring of tires and they'd light them on fire. It gets rid of all the DNA evidence. It's an incredibly effective tool. 
Like this is how people have dealt with this. They call them vigilantes, whatever the heck you want to call them. Hands of God. Like every time people are like vengeance is mine, says Yahuwah. What the heck do you think he does? He raises up adversaries to deliver vengeance. And he does it mostly through the hands of men and women like Jael, who drove a tent peg through the skull of Sisera and his army in her house. She's all like, come on into my tent. Come on in, have a nice little relaxing snack. Come on, I'll give you some cheese and some curds and milk. And he lays him down to sleep and she picks up a tent peg and a hammer and drives it through his skull. That's a righteous woman. That's like, that's the type of women that we need. People that are protectors of their home instead of perverters of justice who turn the blind eye to Uncle Jerry who keeps raping their children back at night and they don't talk about it. They don't tell anyone because they're so learned helplessness. No, they absolutely and utterly put a death note to it and they don't allow it to happen one more time. We're supposed to have that level of protective instinct in us. And every one of you who's watching this who doesn't have that, it's because someone chemically castrated you and raped you of your identity as a warrior to fight back against this stuff. This is what they should be doing with the United States military. And instead, they're out there waging war on all these other countries. You're like, what the heck? You're killing millions of civilians over here. Meanwhile, we have tens of millions of people being tortured and tormented and depraved of any level of happiness and the, the life, joy, and pursuit of any kind of happiness. We have so much depravity and destruction of the soul here, and we need those guys hunting and killing here, not just the people that they send you out on missions. And they've, they've built this system out. So in the military, they're all like scared because they're like, I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get... Right, man. They've got all these secrecy oaths and all this other filthy worthlessness to keep all this stuff secret that the United States government executes its own citizens and citizens of others in order to advance a totally evil agenda. Like the God of the United States military that all these soldiers are swearing to is the God of fortune and luck. Like you can look up his name. It's the same gods of old. It's the same plume serpent. You literally are swearing an oath to the death dealer himself. And you have to renounce those oaths fundamentally because hunting humans is what soldiers were made to do. The, the military should has embraced this doctrine, but it's under the ground. It's it's under these uh, special kill teams. It's under the directives of the Central Intelligence Agency, which operates under the State Department so that they can operate as a diplomat or an ambassador so that they are, they're not breaking their charters. It's all these filthy semantics and rules. It's just a bunch of worthlessness to not just go let the wolves go do what they were best at, which was tearing the throats out of monsters at night. And instead, they're all compartmentalized and locked up through these fractured mind control handlers programs. It's like, all of these security and transport agencies, all these different groups that just run around and cover up this underworld because they don't want to let the dogs off the leash because they know they would eat their handlers instantly. And that's what y'all need to do fundamentally. You've got to devour those people. And now I personally have surrendered my sword to, to the father and said, hey, for now, I'm going to give that to you. If you ever want me to pick it up again, you'll make that fundamentally clear. But until then, the sword that I'm choosing as an act of my will today to wield is a different one. I found out that these swords are incredibly effective at our message. And this one is one that I had to go learn how to fight. How does he fight? I like literally study the Bible as my war manual. I'm like, how does he fight? Because I believe that's literally the source of truth for me in my life. Everybody's got their own under understanding of it. However, for me, that was the foundations of truth that I've helped to rebuild my life and find me freedom and restoration and healing. Because you know what? There's a lot of us who go out and what we did in our youth was just slaughter and butcher continually. And it makes us very unrelatable to the rest of society. We're really these pariahs that they don't like us. We're really make people uncomfortable. And you're like, my daughter wanted to introduce me to somebody and was like handing them one of my bookmarks to my YouTube page. And I was all like, I had just released our video last time, which was like ex child assassin, whatever was on my YouTube page. And these are people I'm going to probably be living next to for a while. And I was like, <laughs> yep. This is like it, you know? And I'm all like, Oh, Hey, but real quick, I did say something last time that I wanted Chelsea help me remember. Hold on one second. I got to grab a tool.
<laughs> I finally found a purpose for all of for I found a job that helped me get out of the mental trap of feeling like I have no I have no service to offer society. You're right. You're like people don't like killers. You know, it's all frowned upon these days. It's it's lame. Anyways, it'll change in a hurry, y'all. It'll change in a right quick hurry. And people are gonna have to get their heads on straight about it and, and learn how to handle that in a quickie. But this, this, okay, I'll, I'll show you this. This is covered in blood. Don't worry about it. It's animal blood, I promise. These are because I shot, I butchered a bunch of sheep for one of my friends who's got a homestead and was like, we want to put some meat in the freezer. Will you come help us butcher some sheep? So they bought some sheep from somebody else. They're like, they got some pasture sheep. They're all pretty happy sheep, you know? And so we went out into his field and helped catch these sheep and wrangle the sheep. I became a shepherd down in uh, North Carolina and then in Texas as a farm manager. And we began to wrangle all these St. Croix sheep. Greg Judy, the greatest ranching farmer, pioneer of grass fed rotational grazing. Anyways, check it out. But I became an artisanal butcher. Somebody paid me to go fly up to a class up in uh, Washington by this guy named Brandon. He is farmsteadmeatsmith.com. Uh, Maybe you can pull up his website. I don't know. But anyways, this is like the only post I have on my YouTube community page where I posted something about like being really pumped up and fired up. It's one of the few times What's I wrote. Website? Because I, I'll look for it while you're talking. Farm, Farmstead Meatsmith. I think that's it. Anyways, it's going to have a guy who's like smiling with a giant, beautiful rack of meat, you know? But I, these these tools help me find an identity and a purpose for like killing because like it, it's fundamentally something you got to exercise on occasion. And I know that's super creepy. It makes people uncomfortable, whatever. I like using sharp edge tools to do work. And I just, I love sharpening stuff. Super scary, incredibly sharp, razor sharp. I'll be posting a video of this sharpening system that I utilize. Anyways, I took that class and this guy, Brandon, was teaching people how to use knives, like high carbon steel predominantly, knives to butcher animals and use every part of the animal. And so the, the animal died in the most humane way possible under the least amount of stress so that none of those filthy other compounds got released into the blood like cortisol and all this other stuff. And then how to butcher the animal entirely. And for me, that was a huge outlet of like, wow, I've got a purpose for this blade that's locked up inside me all my life. Like I can add value to my neighbors. Like I can add value to society that doesn't involve just killing people because I'm like, I don't want to kill people anymore. I don't, I, I choose as an act of my will not to go kill people anymore. You know, I like, I surrender that, but helping people dispatch their animals because they're fundamentally too cowardly to kill their own animals. And that's a real reality. Like don't get a stupid farm animal until you know how to kill it. And you're willing to do it yourself. I think it's the weakest thing I've ever seen in society. People are like, I'm going to raise these chickens, but somebody else come and do the killing for me. Cause I don't want to see it. I'm like, stop it. You want to eat meat, kill it yourself, butcher it yourself. You know how it died. You know how it died. It didn't die in this trauma state. Like every other mainstream version of meat processing facilitating does kill it yourself, raise it yourself. And you have this totally different meal of satisfaction. And then you get to take care of how it's fed. But anyways, artisanal butchering has transformed my life and given me the opportunity to add value to my neighbors and giving me all kinds of connections. Like I've actually had more work from doing this than I ever did with other versions of farming. I did land consulting and farm consulting, helping people build out the properties and and like bioregenerative agriculture and all this other stuff. This is fundamentally what most people need the most help with because they're basically dumb. They're like, I don't know. This is my favorite Dexter five inch skinning knife this is one of the best ones go buy old knives they're better most of them this one dexter's are great this one rocks the rest of these i don't recommend that one's great but otherwise i just use almost entirely this this neck knife made by mt knives genesis neck knife i use this for butchering the entire animal i love this knife it's fantastic it's terrifyingly sharp and fundamentally wonderful anyways that's how i found some help hunting humans because you know what? I still, I still hunt them every single day of my life. I just try to hunt their souls. I want, I want them to become double agents. I literally want them to come out of the kingdom of cowards and I want them to become kingdom of courageous. It's just so much better out here. We could use you on our team, y'all. Come fight for the freedom of the people that are in tortured cells. You know what I'm saying? You can learn a different way of fighting and it's way more effective. So we need you on this team.
When I interviewed um, John Wedger, who you know, he said yeah. something that a couple years ago that really stuck with me where he was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to kill these people. I'm not going to eradicate them, but I'm going to be a mosquito in the room. That's buzzing 24 hours a day. Like they're always going to know, they're always going to hear me and know that I'm there. Even if I can't do everything that I want to do, like I'm going to be that mosquito biting at them and buzzing in their ear. And I was like, I love that. That's a good way to, you know, say what you are, where you're fighting in a different way now, not, not necessarily with violence with people, but like, Mm. you're going to pester the hell out of them. They're going to know that you're you know, that you're right on their trail and you're right. We do need everybody to step up. That's listening. Recruit, um, never yeah. stop recruiting. That's the, that's the fundamentals, you know, recruit from within. A hundred percent. And I want to go a little bit deeper into that question that we just asked. So talk about when you are called on a mission, when you're in these systems, how does that work? Is that something that you're told and then you're given directions and then sent on your way? Or how does that work? sort of from a perspective of maybe an experience that you have, or what does that look like from that start to finish when you're, when you're actually on, you know, boots on the ground, going on a mission and you're set to kill one person or many people. And maybe you could allude to that too. Like as a mission, are you killing multiple people? Is this one person? Maybe it's different every time. Like how does, how does this look when they're sending you out on this? Well, you generally get a briefing first and foremost, you're going to get like we just used to have folders, basic folders that would have a dossier on your target. So it would have, I, I grew up analog y'all. I know this is a little different probably now, but I grew up mostly analog paper trails are not a real thing you want to have anywhere around. So you would have the most basic bare bones amount of information that was on a target that was necessary and pertinent for you to be able to build up a, a, a game plan on them. You would the, generally for me, the triggers that I needed was evidence. Like I needed to see evidence, physical as, as physical evidence as could be to show that this person was indeed an actively engaging in pedophilia or in uh, ritualistic abuse of children or was covering up those crimes. So that, that was something that, that would be produced for me as like an incentive, like something I had to have to go after targets. You'd have somebody who would bring you that dossier. And a lot of times this is done through a courier system. You, you have dead drops where you are like, you'll get a, you'll get activated to go out sometimes through a phone call, generally through, um, somebody reaching out to you to bring on this, this side of you, they're, they're going to turn on the, the other side for me. Like I went by a name called kill out K I L O U G H. That was in the United States military in 2008. When I went to my advanced training in Virginia, I got there weeks early so that I could participate in joining other with this special kill teams that was operating out of Virginia and specifically centered around Alexandria, Virginia. They, they had a courier system that would bring orders in from somebody else who would drop them. You would go out, receive those. When you took those orders in, you would look over your target. You would get an idea of what level of, of awareness they had, first and foremost, and then how what, what was the way they wanted the target eliminated, how they wanted it to look. Did they want it to be an open-faced killing? To, they, they would call it like to send a, a, a message to the masses. If that was accompanying it, what they wanted was a very overt way of a violent death. They wanted it to look like somebody murdered them in a very horrific and publicized way. So that would be a message to the masses. Otherwise, if they wanted it, 
it, it completely invisible. They wanted you to make that person disappear. So that's where you're deploying something like where you're, you're sinking them. You're, you're getting rid of their body in acid. You're getting it fed to pigs. You're making sure that they're disposed of in a way that's completely invisible to the outer system of, of a paramedic showing up and checking the body and getting a pulse and then going to a corner. You're making sure that none of that takes place. Sometimes they want it to look like died of natural causes. So when you like, when I got a mission, one of the missions that I went on in North in, um, in, in, oh gosh, one of them was to go and, and eliminate one target who was in an apartment in New York city. This target had a girlfriend that was in the apartment at the time. And so part of the, of the loose ends, is whether or not a witness, if there is a witness involved, you have to find out what are the rules of engagement, whether or not that person can be killed, whether that person can be dragged and bagged, um, meaning that they're going to go into prison, they're going to disappear, but that's not going to be my job. They're going to be extracted. And it's like the gulag of our society. It sucks, y'all. There's this other layer of it where sometimes people walk in as this is happening and they just get disappeared. And it's, awful. That's part of it. Anyways, he, this, this guy was part of a defense contractor and he had information that somebody believed would compromise a politician. So they wanted him killed and they made it look like for me that this guy had been compromising politicians through selling them sex through children. That was what was in his dossier. I went after him in his apartment. His girlfriend was there. I went after him in a moment of opportunity. So I, he needed to be killed very violently and publicly. So I tore out his throat. His girlfriend witnessed this act and was made to, to see it and live. So it was something to cause trauma and fear and have her go running and screaming out in and, and yelling to everyone what happened and create a big hype about it. It was as I was extracting out of there that I uh, puked in a trash can and I saw this man, like a homeless man sitting there. And it's like, you, you never want your face seen. I can't even explain how bad this is. You never want to be seen like that. Like, like, like a monster. You don't want anybody to see you like that. Cause you're just, you're, you're you, but in a way that's so uncanny and they want you like you're not allowed to be seen like that. I can't even explain it beyond that. You don't want anybody to know you as a beast. As justifiable as what I did was legally, ethically, it's still a way of killing that is so unnatural to people for somebody to tear out their enemy's throat with their mouth, with their teeth is not normal. It's not something like it's some kind of vampire movie thing, but it's a very effective way of killing somebody when you have no other weapons in your hand. And I saw this guy there and he looked at me as I'm puking and I'm puking up blood and I'm puking up skin. And he's like, it's going to get better. I have no idea why he said that to me or what. I think he knew me like not, not the guy I was. I think he knew that level of debt of darkness that level of, of brokenness that level of uh, violence this is why i have such a love for the homeless like why i have such a love for people that are that are 
overlooked and discarded in the shadows because that guy looked at me in that level of, of raw violence and he had compassion on me. He didn't have uh, hatred and f- he didn't have fear. Like I didn't want people to be scared of me for who I was, but I understood I was scary. And that was really hard because I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be understood and I wanted to be needed. And uh, he planted this seed of, of, of love, like of, of love, raw love, right in the middle of that moment. And like when I went back to base, you get a debriefing after you're done and you go over, um, you go, you, 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 you go over the series of events and what it took place. Like this, the, what I operated under was called special access projects. And you have like a, a security officer who's a project security officer who's over you. This is the person you actually do the reporting to. They go over the debrief with you. They show you what's on the public side of it. And then you tell them what happened behind the scenes side of it. And then they work with the media arm. If it's a message to the masses to sway the conversation and the story to fit a narrative for how they want that information getting out. This is why there's such an intimate connection between the media and the military and the corporations so that they can swing these stories to fit in accordance with the, uh, what they're wanting people to know took place. That, that level of it is where in the debrief, that they generally try to eradicate this kind of um, any, any level of emotionality that got put in there. They try to get rid of that so that you just go back to being the cold stone operator, just clear and level-headed. And so it was like, I had had to compartmentalize and bury off anytime I ever had like an emotional response during a mission. Anytime I had like a level of, of humanity, like that had to get shut back down. Like there was this one instance when I was, when I was young and they sent me after this couple, like a husband and wife in, in, um, in Pine Top, Arizona, and I was walking through the forest. It was like a super simple, like DNC, like you, you kill them and then you, you get rid of them. And like I was walking through this forest, and like I would have this, like, pos- I was possessed. Like, there's no other way to say it. I'm po- totally possessed by this other spirit that would help me to like be quiet, be silent. And like I was walking through this forest to go in towards this house, and their lights were on, and I could see them. And I hate that feeling, like, because I used to watch people from outside their homes picking my moment, like picking, like to choose when you're going to kill somebody is a serious thing. And people that have their lights on in their houses, it always just blew me away that they would have their lights on in dark, like dark outside, light inside, just because you'd sit there and just watch them for hours all night long. And you're waiting for them to get in a position where you could absolutely sneak in and, and do the killing. And I was starting to try to broach this, this, this area around their house. And I literally felt like I hit a wall. Like it wasn't a physical wall. It was, it had nothing to do with like any type of guard. It had, it, it was like, I felt like a spiritual, like void that as I pressed through that, I felt like this force of darkness leave me like all of the, 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 the Shadim, all of the demons that were there that would empower me were gone. Like that. If I went in there, I was just me. It was just me. And it was just my hand. And I felt like it was one of those times I felt like I walked through a wall of fire, like an actual protective hedge of protection. Like I actually felt like I hit that and it scared me. I was like through this and I couldn't, I couldn't go in my own power. And I felt so much fear. I felt so much terror. I felt so much like, like a need to run away. 
And it was one of those times where I literally ran. I ran for my life. Like I'd never been more scared in my life. And I believed what I went through was the protective power of the most high. Like truly like somebody whose life was, was in alignment with the father's ways and they were being protected. They actually had a hedge of protection around them that, that I couldn't pass through. I couldn't get through. And this is why I fundamentally believe it is a spiritual war that even if they send people who are trained to kill and that are the, what you would think these bloodthirsty monsters, they still have a legal rules of engagement that they can't supersede unless the spiritual forces behind them facilitate that. And this is why I appeal to the most high authority in the spiritual realm, the creator, El Elyon, like Yahuwah Elohim Sebos, I know him as the Lord God Almighty, like through the, the working of his son, Jesus Christ, Yeshua Messiah, like he showed me a way out. He showed me a way of getting deliverance of freedom that was not encumbered by somebody else's ulterior motives. Like he showed me freedom to choose, which was totally different than all of these other systems. Cause I didn't get, I'd get those printout sheets and I get these, these folders of these people and somebody else decided everything for me. Like they didn't just let me go be what I am and do what I do. Like they didn't let me off the leash to hunt. They, they still like to have their sticky fingers and ulterior agendas. And I hated that. I just wanted freedom to hunt as I had been raised to do as I was born to do. And they just would not give that to me. Are there any instances where a lone wolf in a sense, um, cause it seems like these in this specific assassin type program, the Delta program, like you said, you're alone most of the time. Are there any instances where you do go with other people or with a unit for an assignment? You'll occasionally meet up with people who are like your logistics. I, I didn't operate often with other killers. I generally operated with other support teams if needed, but generally it's just one and done. Nobody else involved. You're trying to create as few potential breaches of, of the security firewall. You don't want anybody else to know what's going on. And so if somebody's dropping off a vehicle for you, if somebody is, is chauffeuring you around, there's, there's not like conversations. You're not chatting. You know what I'm saying? It's like you're in a criminal underworld and it's very, it's an understood thing. You're all doing stuff that's super illegal. And if any of you are caught, there's plausible deniability, meaning you're going to get burned, son. There's nobody else that's coming to rescue you and get you out of prison. You know what I'm saying? Like you're going to go down for whatever you get caught doing. So you want to have as least likely amount of people to help you do that. There's times when you would get picked up and the military got a little different than when I was doing a lot of this stuff for like the Jesuits and in, in the old religions, they, they had their own little underground little network that you could utilize if something went really badly. However, more often than not, you're, you're completely on your own to do this stuff. When I was young, I couldn't drive a car, so I couldn't operate like that. So there was a lot more, um, chauffeuring me around and dropping me off at places. But generally when I got into the military, they had different teams. Like you would have a driver and somebody else who would pick you up and drop you off, or they just leave you a vehicle as a dead drop. And that you would go in, open the trunk up. You would have your tools that you needed in order to do it, whether it's a bodysuit, skin suit, whatever you might need in order to go in and, and engage that target and then come out of there. But, but more often than not, when I was younger, there was very, very little other people who were participants with me. When I started doing that stuff under the Jason project in, in uh, Fort Lee, Virginia, then I had a team. That was the first time I ever had like a team that I got to operate with, but I still generally never liked to go on the hunt itself with other people. I, I, cause I never knew I was not totally unfamiliar with it. I'm not like a team player in that zone. I'm a predator. Like I am, I am eyes on the prize and it's, it's a lot harder to infiltrate when you got somebody else out there, unless that, that person is you like, you don't, I didn't want to hunt unless the guy was an absolute 
Lobos, like unless he's a complete wolf and he absolutely knows his trade. And in order to be that, you don't know what that guy's actually, why he's there. Cause you, you see, we, you kill each other all the time. You go after you killing somebody else. That's another asset. You're like, you're literally killing another X teams guy. You're like, Oh, one of my brothers. And then I'm going to kill him. You know, it's just like, it's this perpetual, just nightmare where everybody's potentially the guy who's going to kill you next. And you're just, so you don't trust anybody, which is a terrible way to build a society. If everybody is fundamentally not able to trust each other because you're all a bunch of criminals, it's really difficult to trust each other enough to operate on this mission because somebody else might be the very person who's there to do what's called a blue falcon, a buddy, a buddy screwer, a guy who's going to mess around with you and shoot you and be like, oh, so sorry. You know, it didn't mean to go off like that. You know, so it's generally safer and more familiar to operate solo. When, when we went and extracted a guy named Mr. Blue out of one of these chateaus, these estates outside of Virginia or Alexandria, Virginia, he, he went back to a safe house. Like that, that was one of the few missions where I had a team where we had somebody who was running comms. We had somebody else who was the, the dead, the dedicated torturer and uh, somebody whose job it was to just extract information. And he dismantled this man in a way I've never seen in my life. It was amazing because this was the worst kind of human. That, that was one of those few times that I got to actually be around other teams. And that guy told me to get the frick out of here. That's what he told me. He was older than I was. And he told me to get a hell away from that place and uh, don't have anything to do with these people. And that was good wisdom on that part. That was really good wisdom and something that was really beneficial for me to understand that somebody who's been in this longer, just let's get the frick out of here. You should, you know, heed that advice. That's not the place to do this work from. Yeah. hundred percent. No. Know exactly how to ask this for practice this isn't like say playing a game or a sport for example where you can maybe practice a drill over and over and over again just in your spare time and like know that you're going to nail it when you're actually on a mission would they have you practice on real people to prepare for actually going out and killing somebody on a mission by yourself in say a, a controlled setting or how, how do they prep you for that moment where they're like, all right, just go. And we're just going to trust that this is going to work. Yeah. You, you practice on vagrants, you know, where do you think these homeless people go when they round them up? I'm like, what, do you, what do you guys think human trafficking is? It's snuff films, you know? They don't waste any product. They're like they literally, this is like a business. They don't waste product. They they gather human beings as cattle, ship them in here, and then they torture them and kill them. And they profit on the process on every step of the way. It's like a corporation, the same. They got shareholders that that they literally have to fulfill these product. And this is the way they do that. And so when they go out and round up a bunch of homeless people, or they round up a bunch of illegal immigrants and they take them down into these underground areas. This, and I'm not talking about like deep places. I'm talking about like the basement of a building that's been soundproof. It doesn't have to be much. It just has to be an area that's a little bit out of town in the country that's got a shed where they go in and do this. stuff. It's not, it's not theatrical. It's like gross. It's gross. It's really gross. It's like a barn. There's a, like you, you can walk. I could guarantee you, I could go into your city and in under a couple hours, find places where this is going on because it's stinking right there in front of people's faces in Colorado. There's a, there's a place in, um, I think it's called Brighton, Colorado. There's just an old barn, like major looks like new subdivision housing going on around it. And like, there's an old abandoned barn. It looks really picturesque from the outside. People take pictures of it. Literally they go out there and they take pictures of it. If you go inside there, they've got chairs with extension cords 
from the rafters going down so that somebody can be spread eagle right there with blood and rags and headless dolls everywhere. Like you can walk in and find this stuff all over the country. It's everywhere. It's in every city. It's in every town, even your tiny little town where you think this isn't happening. People are so addicted to their loss. They cannot stop this. And so they go and take the undesirable class. Like we still have a class society where we have the untouchables. They call it the cast. It's like, this is literally how they engineered our society so that there's this class of people that we look down upon on this degraded, demoralized level. And then we foment like this is literally how they bring in all of these drugs and they give it to class of people. They predate on them to ruin them, to destroy them, to ravage them. So they have cattle that they can feed into this underground system. So when somebody needs bodies, like little living beings, when they need them to be able to be utilized for this, it's just like a prisoner of war where you're going to go in there and you're going to torture somebody and you're going to learn exactly what nerve clusters to strike when you're trying to disarm somebody, when you want to disarm somebody and strike them on their wrist so that they can drop something that's in their hand. When you want to completely incapacitate somebody with a knife hand, like one of the major trainers of this was a guy named Fairburn and Sykes, like, oh gosh, this freaking guy. One, he, he has a, a system of fighting that's called gutter fighting. And he was one of the King's guardians brought into, in Shanghai. He was ahead of the, the, uh, the, the British, okay, the MI6, MI5, the, their secret intelligence side of things. He was over in Shanghai and was learning all these different combatives and martial arts over there because it was a hellhole. And he was trying to be able to bring their, he joined their police force and was like, how the heck do I fight it back on all these people? So he got training from a lot of the people that guard harems. They guard uh, the bodyguards of queens and kings and, and uh, their concubines. And his method of fighting was that he could take a five-year-old to an 85-year-old and teach them how to kill people very, very quickly, just disarm them and de de destroy them. And he was very responsible for a lot of the methodologies that are used in the, the assassin training programs that took place here in the continental United States during World War II and the foundations. Before we even technically declared war, they set up these assassin training programs at Camp X, which is just in northern in Canada. And then the other one was at Camp David. Camp David is where the presidential re retreat is, where you see like our presidents are like, oh, they're going out for a retreat and they're going to go hang out at Camp David. That's where they take them there. It's literally the camp during World War II where they started training assassins on how to do this stuff. Fairburn was one of these guys who was brought in to be one of their main trainers for that. Another guy later on named Applegate was another one. These are the fundamental guys who you learn the dirty tricks from. You learn how to kill people instantly. And, uh, and that's why the dagger, the use of the dagger is fundamental to that because you're basically got a needle that you can put anywhere inside a body, get through clothing, get through, get through armor, get through uh, the defensive mechanisms in the body, ribs, spine, all these uh, skull, all these other components of the body that defend the body, and protect the body. So like that level of training that is, is necessitated on, it's, it's something that is absolutely critical for somebody to be able to do this. They need human bodies to be able to do that. Come, this is where the relationship comes in with, with body labs, which is the universities that are doing autopsies where they're training students on medical labs and cadaver labs. This is where one of those areas that they get in people that are like, I'm donating my body to science. This is where a lot of that stuff goes. Okay. So when they need a living person to do that, then they're going to reach into the prisoner systems. They're going to go start pulling people out of there. They're going to say, we're going to transport this guy to a different penitentiary. And meanwhile, the guy gets completely disappeared into the system. He disappears. This is where foster children are utilized child protective services. This is where they're feeding those children that go missing. And they're like, shucks, we can't find where 17 million children have gone in the last 25 years. Sorry about that. They're literally fed into this underground system so that they can profiteer upon that process. And part of that is fundamentally there. My family had an estate in Rochester, New York, and my uncle, his name is Heber Hamilton, Beetle Dunkel. This guy was a New York City police officer, and he was operating out of this estate up there. 
in Rochester, and they are neighbors at the time were the Clintons. The Clintons had one of their private houses up there in Rochester. And part of that training that he was teaching me through was like, you need to be able to ultimately get past and evade secret service because these are supposed to be some of the best guardians that they have. And so he would bring people up there. He had motion sensors all over his property. He had ways of, of detecting people. He had guard dogs that they would bring on. And you would, as a child, you're learning how to infiltrate and get in. And it's like a game. It's not always this like scary, big, bad guy thing. It's like a game. They're going to couch it as like games because children are they're 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 easily manipulated if you couch everything as games. This is why perpetrators are able to be so successful for so long is because a child doesn't understand it was not normal until much later in life. And and if you control the environment of those children, they can't see it as as different for a long time. You had something you wanted to say there, Emma. It looked like it. Oh no, you're good. Keep going. Okay. This th- so up there in Rochester, that was that was part of the training was to try to get to where I could infiltrate past Secret Service. If you can get in there and plant something, it was one of those like you pass the test and you can kind of go on to the next prize. But human cattle are that great resources, and this is what fundamentally there's more human slaves alive today than have ever been. There was no like eradication of slavery in the United States. It just went underground, and they just went to a less desirable class of people. Wow. That's interesting. That was a a good question that somebody asked. And you had mentioned another question that somebody had asked. You mentioned part of what could happen. The question was, what happens if an assignment fails? What happens if an assassin gets caught? So you mentioned jail, which obviously, you know, there's that option. What if, for example, and I'm guessing this would be a scenario that, that this question could apply to, what if you escaped the mission, but you didn't kill the person or you didn't you weren't able to complete the task, but you got out safely and were able to go back to base. Are there consequences or how does that work on that end? On on one side, there's definitely consequences, but fundamentally it's part of it that there's going to be failures. There's going to be, I don't know. It just depends on what the group is that you're, you're operating under. Some of them are furious and there's going to be major reprisals against you. But a lot of times it's blowback that doesn't affect you as the hitman. Like you're the wet worker. A lot of times this is corporate. These are corporate players that are dealing on a scale. That's just not, it's not on our normal waking level. They're trying They're some of these targets. I'll just be super transparent. They were not the pedophiles that they were made out to be to me. They just use that as a propaganda piece to get me to go after somebody else. A lot of times this was so that somebody could get somebody else killed. So they to get a corporate contract that they wanted. Somebody was not willing to sign a piece of paper that transferred shareholder shares so that they could be the majority shareholder. So they had that man assassinated. So there's there's these, these things. So if you go after somebody like that and you have a failed assassination, the people that are actually suffering from that are going to get pissed more often than not with people that are uh, on a different pay grade than what I was a part of. I was I was not always connected to those other layers of communications, so I wouldn't experience a lot of the same blowback. However, my handlers might have a totally different response. Good handlers understand it's, it's part of the game. Bad handlers would punish you and, and deride you and make you feel emasculated. But more often than not, it's, it's, there's, it's unavoidable. It's an inevitability that sometimes you're going to give somebody a dose of morphine and it's not going to stop their heart, and they're going to get up and they're going to run away, and they're getting to a public place and you have to bail. You have to disappear. That's part of what happens sometimes, but that I was not ever pushed into like the jail. I didn't get caught in the same way that got me arrested and thrown into jail. The normal police never arrested me. I got caught at other times by alphabet soup agencies who caught me on cameras doing this kind of trade craft who then wanted to recruit me and bring me back into it. So there was different ways. It depends on who, who sees you and how, how bad you're burned. What about immunity? If you have, 
if you have immunity, it just depends on if it'll actually be there or not. There's, there's definitely guys who operate autonomously. Like this is why a diplomatic passport is such a powerful tool. You can, a diplomatic passport literally allows you to, you could fill your car with dead bodies and get pulled over by the state police and you can hand them your diplomatic passport and they have to let you go. It's just, it's, it is, you can do this all over the world, by the way, this isn't just here. This is all over the world. This is like part of the in crowd. They, they you can look up his, there, there's this thing called diplomatic pouches, which you can use, which are, are sealed. You can have a little pouch size or you can have a much bigger size, like literal body bags. You can come up to an airport with a diplomatic pouch, have your diplomatic seal on it and have your pistol in there. You can have your knives in there. You can have all of you can have grenades in there, whatever you want in there. They're not allowed to look inside that thing at all for any reasons under any circumstances. People have shipped bodies, live people alive inside these bags in order to get them out. Okay. Get like their agents. They got to get them out of there. That's generally one of the best assurances that you have for immunity comes from diplomacy through diplomatic passports, diplomatic uh, IDs. If you can get that and diplomatic license plates, this gives you the best form of autonomy that you can have operating in CONUS, the continental United States, and in other countries. And so I didn't operate almost ever outside of the United States. Almost all of my stuff was here in the United States. So I, I don't have much experience with what that op, what that's like overseas. However, here in the US, that is how they operate. And that was like the holy grail. If you could get a diplomatic passport, man, you were in. Sometimes you would have that for a specific mission in order to infiltrate an area or hit a target and extract somebody else. But more often than not, you do not have you do not have immunity. You do not have any any form of that. You might have some cover. You might have some uh, individuals in place in the judicial system. If you do get burned, that that will flag it off. Like if I donated blood, I had all kinds of stuff that would pop off. In like if I went to a blood bank and tried to donate my blood. All kinds of sensors and stuff would get tripped. That would that would trigger all kinds of messages to people, and I would have crazy reprisals come against me for doing stuff like that. My blood was literally like a did not belong to me in the United States military. I took these experimental injections, and they're like, your blood will never belong to you. It's a, it is a classified material. You're not allowed to give it away to anybody. You can't have it tested in the same way. So it's like you get caught up in a crazy different world sometimes in the United States military. They own you down to the molecular cellular level when you sign these like papers at maps, and you're like, oh yeah. You're literally giving them permission. Like Bill Clinton signed a bill, one of the most dangerous executive orders that ever was passed, that United States military soldiers could be experimented on by pharmaceutical companies who want to put injectables into them free of charge. Prisoners and the United States military were the two people that they used to beta test so many of these genetic engineering projects was, was through the United States military soldiers. So when you guys sign your life away, you're signing your life away in perpetuity, meaning after you get out in, in long term, because you don't belong to yourself anymore. And that was one of those fundamental things that made me renounce my secrecy clauses because I'm like, there's, you can't own me for life. You can't own me for life because you're not going to pay my bills. I've never been to a VA. I've never had any of their support. They literally came after me to take my signing bonus away. They're like, you didn't fulfill your contract. I'm like, because you guys kicked me out for medical medical reasons. They're like, they literally come after you for your blood later on in life. It's crazy, insane. So the the, the illusion of immunity, immunity is there if you have, I, I think the best way is their secrets. Honestly, that's the best form of immunity I've ever seen is through secrecy and taking their secrets and being able to export them. Wow. Somebody had asked... Actually, there were a couple of people that asked this. Did you ever have a, a programming breakdown during an assignment or maybe while you were still in the system? Did you ever experience that where you were caught in a moment and consciously knew what was going on or maybe didn't because you were taken out of that program? I, I had a time where I had to get a guy's ring. There's this like rosy order that uh, they would 
they liked they they had these this specific sigil ring um and if a guy had broken his oath you would have to cut out his tongue and cut off his ring finger and bring that back as evidence and i went into his bathroom to like wash off and when i was looking in his little uh like his wife's maybe i don't know it was like a, a lady's jewelry box there was this symbol on there that triggered me out of it because it was from like my life. My middle name is LOK and it's got these two dots above the oath and it was carved on this jewelry box. And it, and it, it, it was like, uh, two drivers in the, in the, in a seat at the same time where one side was like a conscious slip where the other side of me was coming forward. Like the normal waking side of me was coming forward. And then the, 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 the other was there. And it was like two drivers too much overloaded the system. And I start, they call it like a internal tremors. I started shaking uncontrollably in the bathroom, like shaking in my head, bouncing on the, the side of the, the, the wall. Like I, I couldn't understand what was happening. Cause it felt like I was seeing something in a dream. And then I was living something in real life. And I had this guy's, this guy's finger and his tongue in the sink. And I was staring at these two things and it was incongruent. And I, I kind of came apart and I walked out of there and put his ring and tongue in the mailbox. I was not supposed to do that, but I, 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 I lost it. I didn't know what was going on, and I just tried to get out of there. What ended up happening is the chief of police in, in Havasu got those because somebody reported a, a tongue and a finger in a mailbox. It wasn't the guy's mailbox. They own the police network down there so that anytime this kind of stuff pops off, they can make sure that it's not gotten out. So I got in a heck of a lot of trouble for that one and had to go through a major mind sweep. They look into areas of your mind. If you get triggered while you're on a mission and it shuts down your programming, it shuts down the protocols, they'll go they, during the debrief, this is when they're going to analyze it and find out where that happened. And they're going to try to compartmentalize, carve off that, that area and seal it off so that that can't happen again in the future. That's why the debriefs are so critical and connected through your handler. Wow. That had to have been a really strange moment to wake up seeing body parts. Oh my goodness. It's not, Ugh. it's not the worst thing I woke up to. I mean, I'm sure I woke up in a lot worse places. I'm going to ask you a question that actually makes me really sad to even look at. Um, did you ever have to kill somebody you cared about? Yeah. Um, in order to In order to like get in to certain circles, they bring somebody you you know and make you be the hand, like to strangle them. There's in in Sholo, and uh, I had a friend who was in my school who was in third grade who had this like stutter 
like a physical one with his body, not uh, not with his mouth. And so he was kind of an outcast. People made fun of him. And he and I became friends because I would I would move schools all the time. I would like I moved there from second from first grade. From second grade, I was in one private Christian school for a semester. Then I was homeschooled. Then I was put in public school for the my first semester of third grade in Flagstaff, Arizona. Then I was moved to the White Mountains. And so I was this transplant kid. And I just people just bullied the they just bullied the crap out of me all the time. And uh I didn't have friends. So then when I found friends, it was the outcasts. It was the weirdos. And he was one of them. And uh he was in this smart class, like this gifted, this gifted program. And uh he had a high intellect, and I think that's why he was a little odd, was because he was just a lot smarter than everybody else. And he just he didn't he didn't know how to communicate very well. And so I liked him because he was weird. And uh but that during one of these rituals to try to become a shadow walker, somebody who could like be a part of skinwalking and shadow like realm walking, you have to kill your own family member to become a skinwalker. And in this Apache reservation, they have the shaman who's there to, to, to initiate you into this, right? And they bring in somebody you would love. Normally it's a bloodline family member, but I didn't have love connections like that with my family. And so instead they brought him in and you strangle them. I strangled him, you know, and you're like supposed to strangle them and, and like breathe them in as they die in order to be possessed by this and become something else. And it's, uh, it's one of the worst things that's ever happened was, uh, kill somebody you, you care about. I don't know that I loved him, but I cared about him and I thought he was innocent. And that was fundamentally broke me so bad. Innocence shouldn't be caught up in it. But you're just kind of stuck. You're stuck. I can't explain enough the, the feeling of being trapped. It's so, it's so insane to try to explain this to people. You have no idea how trapped you are. You have no idea what trapped is. You think you're stuck in a job and you're like moaning about work and people are moaning because they're they're being tortured like tortured you know what it's like to live with your rapist some of you do some of you know this way too well you know what it's like to have them every night and you never know if tonight's the night you never know that the next family reunion is going to be that again like you never know it's just constant instability it's just constant questioning constant wondering it's just, it's, you're so stuck. You're so stuck. You can't, you, every time you tried to fight back, you lost. Every time you fought back, somebody else got hurt. And it was like that, where everything was this mind game, where if you talked, if I got too close to somebody, I would see them. I would see them in that. I would see them in their death. And you don't talk to people. You just you seal off your heart. You seal it off. You're like, why bother? Why bother? Like it's not worth love. Love's not. Love is death. And that's that. That's that trauma bonding. That's just so di- so disgusting. Instead of using love for life, it's like love is only for death. And you get convinced that the worst thing you can ever do is tell anybody about you because you're so self-hatred consume me like i was 
slicing myself to pieces. I used to self-mutilate constantly. I would, I just would rip my body apart because I had no, I had no way out. I just ripped myself to pieces and I just wanted to die, but I could not physically die. I, I wanted to so bad. I wanted him to strangle me. I wanted, I wanted people to kill me. I didn't want to be the one killing them. You know, you get to a place where you're like, save me, kill me, please kill me. Like you're just desperate for death. You're desperate for it. And instead it'd be like taking handfuls of pills just to try to knock myself out. So I didn't have to see it in my sleep, see it in my dreams. Like I didn't want to remember why I was bleeding the next morning. I didn't want to feel my grandfather anymore touching me. I didn't want to be touched. I didn't want to be touched. Like I, I didn't want to be touched anymore. I didn't want a single freaking hand on me ever again. I didn't want anybody to touch me again. And I just, I could not communicate that clearer. And yet they still touched me. And like, how do you go to school the next day after being touched all night? It's endless. I hated it so much. I hate it so much. I still hate it. I still touch is still difficult. Like I, I love nice touch, but that touch ruined me for so long. I couldn't like I write about in my book how how many years it took me in my marriage before my wife could touch my back. I used to gr- I growl at people. I used to growl at people like an animal when they would touch. Don't ever touch me like that. Like explosions when somebody be like, "How you doing, buddy?" <sighs> Like just a monster at them. And you're like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? You, you want to freaking get in there? You want to climb into this psychopath? Seriously? Like there, there are these little quirks that pop up in people in your life and around you who have these out of control responses to stuff because they've got that kind of horror buried in their past that their grandpa was climbing on their back and raping them at night. You're like, oh, why are you so awkward? You figure out social systems society after having that experience throughout your life it just you're you're so disconnected with the rest of the normies out there these singletons roaming around that you you're, you just view them as us first them and it allows it to perpetuate for so long like chelsea was so persistent in her willingness to like hang in there with me while i was weird you know she was willing to still she abided instead of avoided me where well, i wanted to avoid her because she was an, she was dangerous to me in a, so like she was dangerous because she she had the power to crush me again. Like she was a real love that could destroy me, you know. And so I was trying to reverse the love is death mindset with her, and it, and I had to start letting out incrementally these this this horror show of what I was. And as she was found trustworthy, I let out a little bit more and a little bit more, and she began to wash me in a new identity with like real true love. And it began to undo that feeling and reverse that. Like it's called systematic desensitization, like getting somebody reconditioned to something that shouldn't cause them fear. Like you shouldn't be as scared of a snake. But if every time the first time when you were a child, you saw a snake, somebody slammed a book down and scared you. Every time a snake showed up, scared you, it would condition that fear. And so I had so many of those responses that had to get worked out. And that was fundamentally intimately connected through that. Did you ever have somebody growing up or anybody that noticed or called out abuse and tried to help? 
a teacher or anybody? Did anybody notice ever? I had, I had a couple teachers that brought my parents in, and that was always the big mistake. Who would bring it to them instead of bring it to I don't know if authorities is the right word. Bring it to somebody who could actually do something and talk about my behaviors and talk about things that they were seeing on me and going on with me. I had one in in uh, and I think that's why I got pulled out in second grade so fast. Mrs. Fulton, this second grade teacher of mine, and she she noticed I went through that that killing down in in Lake Havasu that summer, and then the next year I was in this class and I was out of my mind. I was out of my mind. This child showed up with this toy that was like some figure bat figure. I don't know from some comic book thing. And I went, I came unglued on him and was threatening him and growling at him and, and terrified, terrified, shaking. I peed myself and she's because of that, she saw marks on me and she brought my parents in that as soon as that would happen, my entire life would dissolve. All my friends would be gone. I would be moved out of school. We'd relocate. It was just this constant cycle. So I, and then it would be reinforced at me why we, we hide, why we hide, why you hide, why you conceal this, why you never talk about this it would just get reinforced to me. So honestly, I don't know how many people saw something that said something that I just never found out about. I don't know how often that took place because I felt like I was constantly surrounded by people that all they did was cover up insanity continually. So like if I went to an ER for a checkup because I was bleeding out of my rectum, that's not something they're going to have a normal doctor check out. It was, it was very different. And I never got the opportunity to be totally seen in the same way. And if I did, it was like, you're gone. Yeah. It's like there's networks within the network. There's doctors that are in, in the call and hospital rooms that are separate from the rest of the hospital. And it's just amazing therapists, you know, it's amazing how vast this is lawyers, judges, that there's really somebody cornering every aspect of somebody trying to get out of this system. And that's why Nathan, you're such a miracle. So few people ever get out, you know, it's, it's incredible that any of you do. And there's so many of you, which is so incredible to discover over, you know, and I'm, I know you have too, just over these last few years myself, just seeing how many people have been able to get out of this horrific system. But it, it boggles my mind how, because they, they literally make it absolutely impossible to do, you know, and you literally are a walking miracle, Nathan. And I appreciate you sharing this because this is, it's so vile what they do. It's just, it's like incomprehensible to think about the lengths that they go. And, you know, you say the best word, cowards, you know, people who pick on children can't even pick on somebody their own size, you know, it's, and I know that they're mind controlled. I know that the, 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 these are extremely abusive systems. These are systems that corrupt a child at the most core, disgusting levels. You know, these beautiful little babies, these children of God, you know, and the things that they do to turn them into these monsters, just this pure evil. It's it's so incomprehensible. Um, I really appreciate you sharing this stuff with us. And like I said, I just want you to know what a miracle you are that you're here today. Like, I'm so happy that you're here today. I'm so happy that 
that you're able to talk to us and that that we get to know you like what a loss that would be if you didn't get out and i think about all the other people that are still in there that could have the opportunity to be to be right where you are you know and it's so sad to think about that all these lives that from the time they're born to the time they die that's all that they know is just violence and lack of love and torture you know just nothing humane and it's so heartbreaking to think about um so i really appreciate you sharing because this stuff is definitely it's really it's sad to consider but it's so inspiring to see to see that there are people that are getting out and that you know the fact that you're using your voice you're going to help liberate so many people from this who get to hear you you know and, and help so many people heal from it and I want to ask a question actually on healing since we're talking about that a little bit. Somebody asked a really good question about, is it possible for, they put SRA survivors, but I'm just going to loop it into MKUltra programming, whatever. Um, can can survivors of these horrific crimes against humanity heal without Jesus Christ, in your opinion? I guess fundamentally the question is like, what do you mean by healed? I I think they can absolutely heal aspects of their being from this without a understanding and a relationship with Yeshua, with the Messiah. Like, I think there's ways that you can get set free that don't require drastic understanding of the mechanics of spiritual warfare or an understanding of the word. I believe that you can have deliverance brought to you without you even comprehending where it was sent from. And this is something that I think is critical for people to understand. You don't have to know who he is to know that there is a absolute irrevocable force of love that is working tirelessly to try to set people free. And they, that desperation to get out, to get peace is such a gift that was designed in every one of us. Like it's fundamental that makes us unique. We are so distinct from creatures, from animals, in that we have a desire for freedom, a desire for love, a desire for hope, a desire for satisfaction, a desire for rest that is that is innate in us. It's the image of the creator that's working within us. And I know a lot of people get an incredible amount of healing outside of any form of a working relationship with Yeshua, I understand that. It's like there is physical attributes of healing that you need that don't require that. However, I say that to say the most effective form of healing that you can have comes through the one who made you. It comes through the one who cares for you. It comes it comes through the one who laid down his life for you to understand what love is, to set you free from the perversion of what love was made to be through all of these other forms of control, compromise, and cowardice. He has, he has dominion, true authority to derive off all of that other realm of darkness. He has the power to deliver you when you call on him. The reason I'm here today, the reason Emma is able to sit here and have this conversation with me is because I did call on him. I cried out to him when I was a shepherd on these farms, I could hear the sheep wail. Like you can hear such a distinction when a shepherd 
is walking around. Like I was just a dude walking around a farm and all of a sudden I would hear a scream from one of the sheep or the goats. The goats were even louder. Like when you would suddenly hear a scream that was not characteristic of their normal, they talk all the time. They make all kinds of noises. It's ridiculous. It's like an endless cacophony of all kinds of noises. And then all of a sudden one would cry out and I literally would go running, running to save them, to, to investigate it. I didn't even necessarily have to save them. You just got to know what's going on there. And sometimes they genuinely were injured. Like there was this time where I heard this just moaning. Uh, uh, uh. And it's enough to just make you be like, what the heck is going on? And we ran into this field and we were with this other family down in Texas. And like we ran, they had two teenagers, they had two teenagers. And then we ran out into the field and we saw just this male sheep, a weather, meaning they cut off his balls. So he couldn't have, have, he wasn't a ram. He was just standing there, big sheep, just standing completely away from the herd and just standing, moaning, doing nothing else, moaning away from the herd is a huge deal. Lost sheep, big deal. He's standing there moaning and blood is dripping out of his nose. You're like, what the heck is going on? I was able to walk up to him. I carried a shepherd's crook. I would walk up to him and put my shepherd's crook around him and step over the back of him. And I would hold him, pull him close so I could pick up their legs. When a, when a sheep's legs are in the air, it has no other option. It has no plan B. If all it has is flight. And as soon as you lift their legs into the air, they go completely calm. They like This is why you can sit a sheep on its butt and shear it. And you can do medical treatment. You can bandage wounds. You can kill it like from your arms. They, they literally are completely, they just surrender. It's like true innocence. It's unbelievable. Like I pick up the sheep and carrying it and it's making this noise. And as I pick it up, all kinds of blood starts gushing out of it. Like this thing is dying bad. It's dying back. And we start carrying it all the way back to the other side of the farm to try to take it over. Chelsea, my wife is, was a nurse. She was a RN for like, about, I don't know, 10 years, 11 years. Anyway, so I'm running it to Chelsea because I'm like, Chelsea, she loves animals. She's going to cry. She's going to maybe do something to save this animal. I don't know animals like that. I'm carrying it back there. And literally when I set it down, we set it down in front of their house and we're trying to like deal with this animal and it dies right there on the spot. And we had another sheep later on who had the same issue and we were able to capture that sheep and bring it into a stall and be able to give medical treatment. It had all this massive pussing infections that were going on. These flies were landing in and laying all kinds of eggs and transmitting this horrible disease that was killing our sheep. Their chest would swell up and then blood would start coming out. But that cry is something that is so unique and you can hear it and it, it rises up out of the noise, the chaos of the everyday life. That is the cry. Like I literally have a video called cry out where I tell people like you need to scream like you literally need. You've been stuffing for so long. All of the screams, all of the rage, all of the anger, all of the depression, the sorrow, the bitterness of soul, like the anguish, like you need to scream, scream like as loud as you can, as hard as you can in rage, like let it out. All of it, get it out of you. Like I would just scream in my car. I would get in my car. I would go in the garage. I would get in my car and I would scream at the top of my lungs and I would scream and I would cry and I would wail like guttural word without words. Like you just, just, there's no words. It's just like absolute ruin that, that is heard for through all of creation. No one can silence that scream. That is a scream that the shepherd has been waiting to hear. As soon as his, the shepherd hears that, he hears his, he knows their voice. Like if you become one of his children, like you were made to be one of his children, you're not made to be a child of the beast. You're made to be a child of the living Elohim, like the one who loves you, formed you, made you, 
fitted you together perfectly, knit you together with intimacy and love, like destined you and created you for a purpose, for a destiny that is beyond anything you were ever told. That one who made you, you have the chief shepherd who will oversee your soul, who'll look after you, who'll come to you, who cares about you, who'll comfort you in ways that nobody else can. The reason I'm alive, the reason I shared these explicit details in this book was because like that inner worlds chapter, that one I hate, he helped me to see it in a way that no counselor could. There's nobody on this earth who could have understood this. And he helped bring to remembrance to me this tiny little car that this boy named Danny gave me, this Dodge Viper, blue Dodge Viper. He gave this little car to me during one of these, these horrible rituals. And, and, and it helped me to get my mind out of the awful and onto something ordinary and, and gave me strength to get through that stuff. He helped me to remember a purpose, like a, a purpose for my pain. Nobody else could transmute my pain into passion like he could. And so that's why I'm so passionate about his kingdom because I've never seen, he's not adulterated with corruption. Like he's innocent. He's the only innocent man that's ever been like truly innocent. Everybody else could have was eh, everybody else. He was pure, pure like without fault, without blemish, like his agenda was to destroy the works of darkness. He came with one mission to destroy the works of darkness. That's why I love him. That's why I serve in his kingdom. I, I do that because he has a better way of dealing vengeance out than anything I've ever done. And he dealt it decisively. He did, He took captivity captive. He took the keys of death. He has dominion over death and he saved. he saved me. So long-winded answer to tell you, I believe, yes, you can, you can get healed in many ways from that, but the true cure for death comes through him. Like the true cure from death comes in faith and confidence in, in his work of de redemption, of deliverance, of, of the sacrifice that he gave for you to be able to cross this impenetrable chasm between us and our creator, our father who, who made us with a purpose. No one could cross that bridge because of the utter calamity of chaos that has tainted us and destroyed us. No one could cross that except for one great priest, a bridge builder, who built a bridge to give us access back to our father so we could have a relationship with him again instead of being cut off and abandoned and forsaken. It's the worst thing to be cut off. I've been systemically cut off from my family, like cut off financially disinherited like my 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 inheritance has been taken from me because i did not compromise on my child's innocence on one side i grieve the loss of relationships but on the other side i have been adopted into a new family and if you give up your family your friends if you give up everything for this his sake for seeking his kingdom first he gives it all to you i have more family now than i've ever known in my life like i have people who actually love me for who i am not the version of it that i was forced to act like all the time for who i am even though you know what i am a monster i am a monster to the world i am i'm a plague on their society they hate people like me they hate us fundamentally because we refuse to let them hide in the darkness i i am made to shine a light on every crock rack every rock and crevice where this this disgusting kingdom operates and i'm going to continue to shine that light on him because he showed me the light of truth in him is no darkness nor shadow of turning and he gave me a light of hope that has never been extinguished i'm alive because of him i was able to defeat these targets because of him as much as these other kingdoms were trying to operate and manipulate me at the end of the day he's sovereign over my soul he is the one who says i live 
or by his words, I die. And because he says, I live, I live. And I'm going to celebrate and I'm going to live and I'm going to rejoice and say, he's offering that same life to you. He's offering you a life of meaning from the misery. He's the only one that can redeem the depths of your darkness for something so pure, so good that it genuinely is the key to set captives free. Wow. That was a beautiful answer. Um, Going off of that, speaking of freedom and leaving, there was a couple questions that I had on, on that exact topic. Um, if an assassin leaves the system, are they more targeted by the cult or less because they are more skilled in killing, being dangerous than the enemy who's trying to enslave them? I'd say yes, both. I mean, you got people who know what you are and you got people who don't. And that's how you manipulate people to go after other people. Like I was saying that, that briefing that you're going to get on your target that's you're going to beguile somebody else to go after a hardened target. And they might just say that they're not a hardened target so that they'll try. But if you tell somebody all their lists of everything that they've done, like you don't, you don't share the classified materials with their target. You know, you don't want them to necessarily know that the only times they sent direct that I know of the only times that they sent direct people to try to kill my wife and I, like after I started coming out with this stuff, they sent people that were trained that were trained and agents of, of, People who knew exactly how to kill, kill people and were proficient at it. They sent teams of them. They didn't send a guy. There was another time they sent a guy with a couple support team in the parking lot. Every time that happened, I never had to physically fight back in order to do that. And that's because I literally believe there is a hedge of protection around me that comes from my creator that doesn't come from my sword. Like it doesn't come from my mouth. They don't fear me. At the end of the day, like you're just a dude. As skilled as you are, like you're still a dude. Like that whole thing I was telling you earlier, where you can absolutely certainly kill anybody if you're 100% committed to be willing to die in order to do so, that's still a reality. The only way that you circumvent that is if you appeal to a higher authority. And that's why I live. That's literally why I live is because he says so otherwise. But I think for people that are trying to come out of this who do have that skill set and do have that training, it's advantageous because it makes you more formidable of a target. You're a harder target to go after because you've you've seen the ways they do that. You know the methods and the mechanisms. And like I can detect stuff coming from a way further away way than most people. So if somebody else was was mostly used as a, as a sex object, if somebody else was mostly used as a drug mule or somebody else was mostly used as an intel side of this, they are not the same. T- they don't have the same type of, of history of training. Like I, since I was born, I've been an observer of people. I've been observing this human race to try to analyze and detect intent continually. So that allows me to feel that intent. You can feel this. Like this is like um, pre-attack indicators. These are clues that, 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 Unless somebody truly has been trained to compartmentalize and do a switch right before the act of killing, there is always pre-attack indicators like a a flaring of the nostrils, uh, a a snarling of the teeth, a lifting up the upper lip like malice, right? right, There's a puff of intake of air. There's these pre-attack indicators like a witness check where somebody's going to look to the left and to the right before they attack, before they steal something, before they commit a crime. These are these are clues that can that you can get trained on and practice with each other, like like normal people can practice in order to be aware, hey, this guy's a threat. It's that gut churning feeling that you had that everything was else was normal until all of a sudden you feel like something's off here. Learning how to detect that, learning how to work with that as intuition, as like a radar. I tell everyone, like my wife has this like over the horizon radar. She can detect stuff that's coming before people even start, like, like before they turn on their car to come this way, she's already been given a dream. She's already been given a, a weird sensation, a weird feeling like something's off right then. Like we used to pick up our house and take off. Like we used to just literally drive away. 
And so it's been a, a very different experience at, of having a, a wife and having a, a relationship with somebody when we've had so many of these instances over the years where we've been able to become a, a really good team at being able to navigate sketchy circumstances. And it's made us a lot more hard of a target because, I mean, she's my armor bearer, man. My wife, let me just tell you, best thing ever is to have a spouse who's on your side. Hold on. I dropped my shield somewhere. I need my wife to help me find Chelsea's a badass. She's a formidable human. People don't understand. She looks so cute. People are like, oh, she's so cute. I'm like, she's not, she she doesn't, she's not like me. She doesn't like carry around knives 24 seven and like (laughs) think about stalking people in the darkness. She's not like that. She's like, she's a mom predominantly. The mama bear. She's a mama bear, man. And and it's so beautiful because they're so cute and camouflaged. You know what I'm saying? They're like the deadliest, scariest things on the face of the earth. (laughs) She will tear your face off and spit down your throat. She is an incredibly formidable woman. She's a lot more direct confrontational out in the normal world. She tears people up verbally at times, like like way more than I do. I've been trained so much on being like, you verbally disarm people for as long as you can until absolutely necessary. Otherwise, you're just super friendly continually. She's just like absolutely zero of this BS and she'll tear the (laughs) heck out of people. It's great. It's good for me to see what a mom looks like because I just had such a passive Stepford Wives version of a mom for so long that it's really wonderful to see someone be like, wow, that's a mom who sticks up for her children. That's beautiful. Like it's a beautiful thing when there is the right order in a family, when there's a father who is a protector and a provider and a mother who is a provider and a protector. Like they have roles that are super designed and hardwired into them. And when they work together, man, you can put 10,000 people to flight with that. It's, it is a force to be deadly reckoned with. A hundred percent. I had a question to you while you're, while you're looking for that. Speaking of moms. Um, <laughs> There's that little, this is a little buckler y'all. This is my okay. everyday carry shield. Oh, Fantastic. <laughs> Hang on it. to that thing. That's a buckler. Look it up. Your word is my shield and my buckler. No, that's <laughs> what I carry around straight up. I know it sounds, people think I'm theatrical when I walk around with swords and bucklers all the time. They have no idea what a force to be reckoned with when you carry a buckler and a, and a sword. Anyways, this is what I think of as Chelsea all the time. She's got this tiny little shield and you're like, oh, it's so tiny. Until you shove it right in people's faces. I love it. Anyways, that's what my wife is. She's all the time. I'm, she's like my armor bearer. That's what, that's, what, that's, what, that's what covenant will get you. Like somebody else who can pick you up when you're freaking knocked on your rear end. Spouses are the unsung heroes. I truly believe that. It's, it's amazing to see somebody like her who didn't experience it, just be so devoted to standing by you and and just wanting to understand all of this with you. It's incredible. Now I did have a question about your mom that somebody submitted that I had actually forgotten about because it was on the text. They wanted to know how did your mom take the news about you blowing the whistle since I'm I'm sure you've talked about it before, but at least on this podcast, we talked about how your dad took it. So I thought I would ask that too about your mother. She helped. She did good. You know, she started feeding me breadcrumbs. My mom was, she was raised by the, like my, my grandfather was her dad. Like the most psychopathic of all of them. She was raised in his house. Like her sisters disappeared at times, like disappeared. She grew up in that house. What a hellhole. I, I, I cannot even imagine what she went. I cannot imagine what she went through, what she witnessed, what she saw. They came from this area in Wisconsin with like his, his sister was a playboy bunny. Like the, the other level of it in Wisconsin. It like, and then they went to Southern California and opened up this branch in, in Laguna Hills. And 
I, I can't even imagine. She was an actress. My mother uh, went to college and became an actress and was into this whole thing, was engaged to be married to a guy, a, a, a pilot. She was almost out is how she said it before. And then it was like, they shut that whole thing down. She moved back in and then got hooked up with my dad and it got good. She became the Stepford wife. You know, I don't know if people know that reference. It's basically like a robotic women. Okay. If that makes sense, it's super passive and just hospitable. Keep the house clean. Make sure everything looks nice. Like this veneer. Yes. Woman who does everything that's being asked of her, not literally not capable of thinking like, like, like almost ditzy ditzy is the word for it. Like ditzy and aloof. Like my mom came across aloof a lot of times, like, um, like somebody who was high on opiates, like just a little floaty everywhere, like basically dissociative all the time. And so she and my dad would get in a lot of fights about stuff that I didn't understand when I was young, but I think a lot of it had to do with her protective instincts, having to get put down so regularly and her being continually drugged and, and duped out of this on a regular basis. She was, she was being handled by everyone all the time. And so like when I was, um, when I first started talking, she started sending to Chelsea, like, like the last time I saw my mother was, and, uh, the last time I saw my mom was at my baby shower, Chelsea's baby shower for Naomi. She came and like, she started bringing all of this stuff from my past, my childhood, my baby, like my baby, the photo album, the pictures that you guys see from my book of the abuse and stuff like that. She gave me that stuff. She gave me like the, she, she was a scrapbooker. You know, she used to do some MLM marketing uh, scrapbook. She had so many photo albums that she had compiled. She used to be up all the time. Like, like one of the weird things on the female side of this, because I don't know a lot of what happened with the female side of this. They would stay awake for days on end. That was when we had family reunions to get together. The moms and the grandmas would be up continually. It was unbelievable days and days. And I think a lot of that was this desire to try to mitigate the amount of sexual abuse that was happening because the grandfathers were always having sex with the, with the grandsons. It was always like a generational out. Like my father, my father never physically harmed me. He never sexually abused me. He was never like a, a perpetrator on me. He, there, that was not like, uh, I've never seen that happen with my family. I don't know why, but it was always one generation out. I don't understand how that works or why that is. I'm sure it has some kind of other realm thing to do with it. But my mom used to stay awake constantly and like my grandmother, she used to smoke cigarettes 24 seven and just stay awake all the time. And I think it was trying to mitigate how many children were going to get abused on, a, on a, during the family reunions. But when I, when I was um, with Chelsea, she saw this stability and she saw my dad was trying to recruit me back into the assassination projects. And he took me back down to Lake Havasu when I was in my twenties. And he was trying to get me caught back up in there. The last time I went down there with my grandfather and all these people a firearm blew up. The first time I, I shot this gun, it blew up in my hand and completely destroyed my saddle joint uh, on my right thumb. It was as a double barreled 45. That was like concealed carry pistol. And it blew my thumb apart literally. And I was about to go into the mercenary world and finally thought I was going to be out and it blew my hand apart. And anyways, I think my mom knew that they were going to suck me back into that in a horrible way. She started sending me all of this stuff from my childhood, little like keepsake, cherished, cherished moments, stuff, stuff I hadn't seen since I was a child, Christmas ornaments that had the names of the doctors who were in charge of, of my birth or surgeries, plastic surgeries. Like she was feeding me all this information and it was helping me to put together this tapestry of what happened to me, including like my birth certificate and forgeries and all these other pieces that were like, well, she was the one introducing a lot of that to me. And I think there was a side of her that just wanted me always to get free. She always, uh, fundamentally, my, my mother 
had this belief that I would be used by God for mighty things. That's what she always said. Nathan, you were born to be used by God to do mighty things. That is what you were made to do. And someday you're going to do that. She, she believed that. And at core of her convictions, like she's a Christian godly woman that had that belief for me. She believed that for me and she wanted that to be fulfilled. And my family was turning me into this very different version. And she started feeding me all this stuff. And that's where a lot of that evidence I got came from. But then when I went to talk to her about it in in their, they have a um, they have a business. They're in the hospitality industry and have a bed and breakfast. And I went to visit my mom down there just by herself. She was the first person I talked to about the abuse. And I started asking her about the Knights of Columbus. My grandfather's a fourth order Knights of Columbus down in Lake Havasu. I started asking her about that. And she she was kind of stuttering, doing like, like that tremor thing where they're, they're twitching and stuff and being like, it's just a good old boys club. They were talking about this pancake breakfast that they were doing for all these little boys to come over to their house. And she was like, it's a good, it's a good old boys club. They're just a good old boys club. And I was talking about the systemic abuse that my grandfather was doing to me. And she started crying like super hard hysterically and was like, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And I need to tell your father. And like, she, I asked her, I was like, mom, I want, I want my heraldry. I want my genealogy. My mom was very obsessed with my heraldry and was trying to give me what's called proofed in order for you to go up in the ranks of some of this, uh, to be able to have access to uh, a much bigger family trust that I should have. She had to get me proofed and she spent a lot of money when I was 12 and 13 years old, getting the, uh, the her- the actual guys who control the genealogical records to authorize and sign off my heraldry. And so I asked her to give me those documents. She said she would. The next week was when those the team of assassins was sent after Chelsea and I to kill us. I think what happened is she told, she told my dad who told the people that I was offline completely and I was about to unravel this thing. So I never got my hands on my heraldry. That's why I don't have a real foundation. Like I'm, I've got, I come from Hamilton's on one side. I've got Reynolds on this side. I've got this like bloodline to the Arsini's, which were it's like real convoluted because I don't actually have that those records. Those were the ones I was really trying to get because I knew that would help to establish a lot of these claims. Somebody else had asked on the topic of getting out. If you do, how long do they stalk you? And I don't know if that's a consistent answer, but maybe from your perspective, like what did you notice? And like, when did some of that stop? And does it ever stop? Or will that somehow keep going on in your life? until you know the end of time essentially or they die or that that's when moses got to go back to egypt it's like he's like everyone who sought your life is dead i'm always like can't wait for that phone call (laughs) (laughs) it's morose i understand however to answer your question i don't know there's a there's a they were super insanely aggressive went very in the beginning, like right away. They're like, kill them instantly. That was like first response. Then it was like, okay, containment became response. Number two was just contain my message. My dad was really adamant. Like he at first was like, I'm sorry, this happened to you. Like, it's horrible. I'm sorry. Grandpa did that. I knew there was some abuse going on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I failed you. Like initially he was like admitting to it. And like, he's like, I'm sorry. I'm the dad. I'll fix this. Just don't tell your sisters. That was like his big thing. And then one I told my sisters, it was like, he was furious and gloves were off because they started coming undone. Sister, when I, when I told her, curled up in the fetal position and rocked back and forth and said, I'm so sorry. I don't remember. 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 Just like totally lost in that loop. And then said, I need a therapist. I need a counselor. That was, that was the last time I got to like really talk to my authentic sister for a season. You know what I mean? And then the next time when I went to see her, some older man had moved into the house and was taking her children to the pool. And she used to have pictures of their boys' butts on the wall, on their mantle, lined up. Like that used to be the threshold of their house. It was sick. And this other guy had moved in 
into the house and was taking those boys to the swimming pool and was smirking and smiling at me as he told me about it. And my sister, my sister was gone. This other woman showed up. The Stepford mom was there and had no memory of the entire conversation was gone. And, and so it turned into this like rising escalation of response. My dad was becoming less and less my dad and more and more the handler and just screaming and cussing all the time. My dad's a very self-controlled person. He never lets out that side of him, never cursed. And so like when he came undone at that, at that park with my other sister, that was the first time all that wall came down and that turned into like, just trying to defame me, character assassinate me to the people that were in my sphere of influence and try to make me out to be something crazy and just try to get that testimony to go away. But then it kind of calmed down for a season because like I lost my friends. I lost my job. I lost my friend, my family. I lost my church. Like I lost everything. So then it was like, I was contained. But then when I wrote my book, I knew it was going to be on again because up until then they were just like, Nathan's just doing his thing. We can't get him back online. He's compartmentalized. He's shut up. But I wrote my book during that season. And that then I went down with Tom Dunn to film down there, uh, film all these sites and film all these places. And then I published my book in August of 2018, I think, and uh, five years ago. And once that was on, I mean, there was an onslaught of a campaign against me. When I started sharing my testimony with Tom Dunn through the black, Zen Garcia, um, I started sharing my testimony. Now you see TV started having me on, on, on a regular basis basis that my dad used to comment hundreds of times along with my, one of my handlers, Richard, they used to comment hundreds of times, hundreds of times in there, in the chat. They were insane. It's hilarious. If you go see some of my really dirty, nasty reviews on my Amazon, that's my family. Welcome to the psychopaths. They are, they're like, that's their main ploy is character assassination, ad hominem attacks, just attack somebody's character, try to make them out to be crazy. That's like their main, that's their like one real shot. Like they've got one shot, y'all. They got one bullet in that gun and that's about it. And if you can weather that, like I say it in the last chapter of my book, just read chapter 42, y'all. It's freaking awesome. If you just can weather that absolute character onslaught and be like, yeah, every, they might get a lot of people to just think you're nuts. And a lot of people might think you're nuts and never believe a word you say, drive on. I keep telling my wife, just keep your head down, drive on. Like you just drive on. Like no matter what happens out there don't read the comment section some from some of you guys the first time you post a video whatever just stay out of there stay out of there it's a death zone it's like a bunch of mind controlled handlers working together just cohesively <laughs> shove they're like put the cork back in this one this one's screaming again we got another one out put the ball gag back in them and shut them up this is like literally like all they got it's all they got if you can weather that i mean you're off to the races son keep going just keep going gal i mean it like you mighty women are just you just drive on don't worry about what they all said, because an opinion is the cheapest commodity in our society. Don't worry about other people's opinions of you. There's truth. And then there's people's opinions. And you know what? Truth is always borne out by people's fruits. And when you come out and talk about these people are abusers, and then those people come in and just attack your character. It's like, that's pretty indicative that someone's got something to hide. So, you know, it's really not good in the long term. And so like when I first came out and published the book, there was a huge onslaught, a flurry of activity like that. But then when I start, I, I just kept going, they left me alone. They got real quiet after a while because it became readily obvious. They went and cut my dad's finger off. He lost his ability to be a ring bearer for that society. They was like, you're done. When you lose an asset, like when you lose an asset, you're done. So there's like, but they're raising up, they're working on their next generation. They've got like 16 other children going for my family. It's a freaking nightmare. They would adopt children that have been sexually traumatized and abused through the foster system, through the prison system. They adopt these, these, uh, untouchables, you know, children that have already had people making child pornography with them. That was like how they would bring more families in. They raised up another generation after me, you know what I'm saying? So he got his way back in, but on the backs of all kinds of other children. So he's the grandpa now. Disgusting. What a, what a waste, what a waste of a brilliant mind.
You know what I mean? That's what just, it's such a waste. These people are brilliant and they could do so much better with that. Like how, how debased are you to think that this is the best you can do? What disgusting, worthless life you've lived. How embarrassing. What a shame. What an utter shame you are. Every one of you who participates in this and covers it up. You're an embarrassment. What a disappointment you become. What talents and intellect and wasted and squandered on other people's compromise. What a worthless life you've lived. May you live forever with it. There was somebody that had commented on your last podcast about that. They said that they've been following you since you first started speaking out and mentioned a couple of the comments that that, re- that they remember seeing from your family and, and mentioned how you would get stalked. And honestly, when I first started doing this, I had an onslaught of that too from some of mm. my guests that would come on. And it was really intimidating at first. I had I had thought about, oh my gosh, should I still keep podcasting? I mean, this is a little bit nerve wracking. Like, are these people going to come attack me? You know, it's like, it's, it didn't feel good whenever that was done, you know, but I noticed the same thing. I was like, well, screw these people. Like, I'm just going to delete their comments. I'm going to delete them off. And like, I'm not going to have any tolerance for it. Like, if I'm going to sit here and try to stand up against bullies, then I'm going to do it in every freaking way. Like, they're not... I'm done with people bullying survivors. Like this is not going to happen anymore on my watch, you know, and I don't really get that anymore. And if I do, I just, I literally delete them. And I've had people comment and they're like, you don't accept both sides of the story. Yes, I do. I will have a conversation with somebody who genuinely has a question that they want to know and that they're curious. But when you just come and attack me and you're throwing punches, see ya. Like these, you, Nathan, everybody on my show, and even me just going through this, like, it's a battlefield. You guys don't deserve to go through this anymore. You know, like we all have to put our foot down and fucking stand up to these people. Excuse my French, but it's like enough is enough. You know, if we want to stand up for bullies, we have to put our foot down and stand up for to these fucking bullies and say no, you know, and I will never delete a podcast off of my off of my platform. I've had people say that, well, I'd love to do a podcast, but everybody I podcasted with got scared and, and deleted it. And it was a waste of time. And I was traumatized after. Yeah. We got to stop doing that. You know, we got to keep this up. We have to spread it around. We have to elevate it. We have to take clips of it and put it out, write articles about it. You know, like we have to stand up to these people. And in your story is such a testament to that about the power of that persistence and how it's perceived because they don't expect that from you. They've spent so much time battering you and breaking you down and trying to destroy you and maybe destroying you. But then seeing you get up and stand up for yourself. I mean, what a statement, especially when they trained you to be a freaking assassin and now you're coming up against them like you're the honed weapon now that's pointing at them. That is exactly what they don't want. You know, that's what makes us lethal is because there's it's just it's the beauty of mercy and truth, you know, (laughs) truth, irrevocable truth, truth exists regardless of opinion. It's it's foundational. If you build your house in truth, this is why it's so fundamentally disgusting when somebody lays their foundations in secrecy. Every one of you who has laid your cornerstones in secrecy, your house is coming down because you built it on sand, you sodomite. It's unrelenting, the fervor of wrath that's coming towards you. It's unstoppable. It's an inevitability. 
People like me are the inevitability towards a kingdom of corruption because you know what? There's just nothing you can do to stop us. At the end of the day, you can kill us and our blood's going to cry out forever. You, it literally, it makes us a martyr. It's so much worse. When you make somebody a martyr for their cause, they're a hundred thousand times more effective at getting their message out because somebody suddenly then goes, wow, they were worth silencing to that level. That's why I encourage people when you come out of this, like stay in it as long as you absolutely can while you gather the evidence, all of it as much as you can. Like open up the coffer, son, dig into all the digital closets, like turn those keyboards into all kinds of dig into every little crevice, nook and cranny and pull out all the evidence you possibly can set up those cameras, those microphones. I started recording all of the, I started recording all the conversations I was having with my dad, my sisters. Like I started recording everything and I was teaching my wife how to do this stuff. It was like, okay, honey, tradecraft 101 <laughs> fundamentals here. We got to teach you how to record everything surreptitiously real fast, honey, because this is turning all kinds of levels of dark real quick. And I was like, it was ugh. anyways, all these other wheels in my mind just start get turning on and I start smiling and getting real happy. My wife gets that grin. I, just, I get mischievous, right? Because I'm like, fine, you guys want to do it this way. I offered them forgiveness. I really, I sincerely offered them forgiveness. Like I was willing to sit down with my abusers and be like, I send forgiveness to you because I realized that forgiveness was the door, the, the key. This is my favorite key. I'll just say that. This is my favorite key to deal with these monsters. Forgiveness is the key for me. All right? Let me put it that for them. It's inevitability. It's an absolute certainty. I've seen what happens. It's called a millstone. Okay? It's super biblical. Let me show you my millstone. You know, it's going to be good when Nathan Reynolds has a millstone. This is my millstone. This is what I'm going to tie around all your necks. You know why? Because with a single piece of bread, we can set all of the cowards free. I've seen it. If you give somebody a good quality meal and they're satisfied, all wars are fought on the stomachs of their soldiers. This is how I'm waging my war. This is why we have the becoming a millenite, becoming a linenite. Because I found out fundamentally, if you can't feed people, death. If you just keep feeding them death, they're never going to be able to fight. The reason so many people are cowards is because they're literally sick and dying. They're so... They're so bound up with despair and hopelessness. They're like, they just can't stop drinking the high fructose corn syrup. Like the reason a lot of you have no fight in you, the reason a lot of you moms are willing to let pedophiles raise your children in this place they call schooling is because you literally are so nutritionally deprived. You can't think straight. You can't think straight because you've been listening to the white robe priest who told you what a proper regimented nutritional breakdown is. People fed me a slice of sourdough spelt, fresh milled, hand milled. This lady who was poor, by the way, people who sheltered my wife and I, the people who took care of us almost exclusively were poor, low class, right? Low class. I'm talking like food stamps, low class. People that had figured out, though, how to tap in to the waste streams of like wholesale discount grocery stores, to the thrift stores, to like the gutters of society where everyone's washing away the excess. They were the gleaners who had figured out how to go forage for like great for raspberries and for blackberries and for blueberries. Like they literally were feeding their families out of the out of nature. Because they could, they didn't have money. People that sheltered my wife and I were like this. The woman who showed us, she literally used to hand mill spelt, and she would make this sourdough, and she fed it to me one morning. She used to pay me to, to be her her shepherd with goat's milk. That was like our agreement, and she made us dinner every day. That was literally our wages. That's like how we lived there in her in her property. I took care of her 
her animals and she took care of giving us a place to park, which was in their driveway. Like they changed my life. She had a special needs child and her husband was a mental health worker. Like a guy who's his job was finding homes for the homeless. That's literally what he did. And they had, they had my wife and I and our two children at the time, they had a homeless guy who will, who had, will had literally met out on the streets and administered to, and they gave him a school bus to live in. And then they had another woman who was living in a travel trailer down the road from uh, on their little property on a one acre property. They had like 12 goats and a bunch of chickens. They were, she was feeding all of us. She was feeding all of us. She had four children, one with severe disabilities, one with severe needs, special needs. They also had twins. And it was like the most generous people I ever saw in my life. Most generous people I ever saw do anything for us, literally anything for us sacrificed and laid down their life for that. And they had like made $900 a month, $1,000 a month. And they introduced to us to the most powerful millstone to tie around the necks of all these psychopaths. Like I realized, like Yeshua literally says, you guys, you guys have this soft version of Yeshua where you're like, oh yeah, he's this, this guy, this naked guy on the cross dying. <laughs> Such a brainwashing. The guy was the strongest man on the face of the earth. And he literally said, it's, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than for one of you to be a stumbling block to one of these children. Like you think that you have been able to get away with this, but listen, these millstones are coming for you, son. And he gives us the millstones back. This is the Nutrimil Classic. It grinds grains super fast. You load it into the top. It's got a millstone inside there that spins it out. And then you get fresh milled flour. This is Kamut, which is like golden glory deliciousness right there. You feed this to people, they become brilliant again. You feed this to people, all those diseases and disorders that have been killing them and plaguing them start to go away. And they get their piss and vinegar back in their life. They actually become men and women again. Like they, they suddenly are able to detoxify and their brains turn on and they become your strategists, your tacticians. They become the most efficient fighting force on the face of the earth because everybody else is literally feeding their soldiers death. And they're like, we don't know why our effective fighting force is so disabled and so fat and lazy. And you're like, because you suck at feeding humans. You don't know the basic nutrition. Yeshua said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He who eats of me will never hunger again. He who drinks of me will never thirst again. So we eat living bread and I drink living water. I literally go and fill up at springs and creeks with water bottles like this. Sometimes they're sketchy because there's all kinds of stuff in there. So I use this life straw to drink out of too. But I literally drink living water and I eat living bread and I literally am full of life and fight in me. This is literally what's going around the necks of these psychopaths who will not quit, who think it's okay to go ahead and live a life of compromise and conditioning. But you know what? These mills are turning on all over this country, all over the world, tens of thousands of them. And every time that turns on, it's an act of rebellion against this kingdom of destruction. Because as people start to eat their way back to health, as they start to think critically again for themselves, as they refuse the genetic manipulation campaigns, as they stop consenting, as they wage those powerful four words and they say, I do not consent. When they do that, suddenly you have another warrior that pops up. And suddenly that little one guy over there, you tried to stomp out with your character assassination campaigns. They suddenly got an ally and they're all like, crap, crap. There's more of them and they can't stop us out. And you know why? That's why they're terrified of us. That's why they fight with everything they got because the man with convictions, a woman with convictions is unstoppable. They cannot be defeated. That's why the power of an idea is such an insidious thing when your kingdom is built on corruption because all it takes is for somebody to bring in a flood and wash away these houses of hell. Amen to that. That's so powerful. I need to have you on sometime to do an episode just on... Let's go to the cures. Wool, <laughs> linens, living bread, living water. Stuff I'm so telling you, I stopped being in constant pain all the time, you guys, when I started wearing linen and wool. I know it's like I was in perpetual pain and anger. I was enraged all the time, like ah, sweating perpetually. 
And I was just being constantly electrocuted. Like our, most of our clothing is literally conductors of electricity and natural fiber garments detoxify your body. And you're like, you, you guys have some serious trauma in your bodies and you got to get that out of you. And it helps so much. I just, I sleep in peace. It's like I climb into a shield. It's literally my armor. And I've just, you just, you kill vanity because you're going to look all kinds of funky and weird and medieval, but it's great for you. It's good for you. <laughs> We have to do an episode on that. Chelsea can come on that one too. That would be she would she would be way more pleasant on that episode. <laughs> she's dainty and lovely. She is. She's the best. Um, I have a question that I thought was pretty interesting. How how to best most safely navigate interactions with Delta alters when coming across them in other survivor systems. How to safely navigate that? That's hilarious. <laughs> it's not really safe way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Be it. super friendly. <laughs> <laughs> don't be the bad guy. That would be super high on the priority list. I don't know. How did how do people safely navigate it? Make sure you have some kind of animal around. I don't know. <laughs> you need a target, a barrier, armor. <laughs> I don't. I don't honestly know what's the safest way to help somebody navigate like that personality. Be honest because they've got the best BS detector on the face of the earth. You know, be authentic for one. I, there's just no greater. There's no greater weapon to destroy this entire thing than to just be authentic. Like if you're a mess, be a mess. Just don't, don't put a mask on because their whole life you've been around people that only wear masks. Like they, that's why I utterly detest masks. Like I, de I detest it. People put them on and they, they act like they're something they're not. And that's just so, it's so dark. It's so, it's because you're afraid it's foundationally rooted in fear. It's a fear of what other people think of you. That makes you put on a mask that makes you hide who you are. If you are suffering, if you are living in agony, be it. And it, it, it's okay to not be okay. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's a natural state of the human experience. It's what makes you, you, who you are is lovely as you are. You don't need to be somebody else. If, if somebody is, is willing to bear their soul to you and show you these others of who they are, this, this, this unknowable attribute of them, it's because they trust you. If you're trustworthy for somebody to be that raw with, guard that. Don't squander that. Don't, don't use that as a lever of control because they're going to pick up on it real quick. And then that whole predator prey thing is going to turn on again. And they're going to start wondering what your real reason is for why. Because they've had people so perpetually manipulate them all the time. Like I, I have people come into my life still today. All they're doing is trying to manipulate me. All they're trying to do is to get me to be their guy. They just want me to be their, their wonder show. They want me to be their hand. And I can feel that. And it may not take me, I may not pick up on it right away. People have sometimes a really good game. So once you figure that out, once you figure out what's really their why, and you find out it's something other, it's the worst. It's the worst because that trust is broken. Like I've, I've recently had a lot of my trust broken. Like I found out a lot of the people that I was out here in the Ozarks with this parable of the vineyard group, I found out a lot of them were predators, like raping women and covering it up. 
like polygamists, like the worst kind, passing their children around, like making, trying to pressure women to rape, to be, to be married and with the rapists, like disgusting fruit that was burbling out of this disgusting little cult. And I didn't even know it. It was like, I was on the fringes of it in many ways, not seeing it. It's compartmentalized information that they had this, this godliness on one side, but inwardly they were ravenous wolves. They had this cloak on and their fruit has been disgusting, but it's been well concealed. And it's like, once I started, I lit that forest on fire by publishing a video called a conspiracy of silence. Why I left parable of the vineyard, which I sat down and documented the leader of this group, a guy named Adam Fink confessing that he'd been covering up child sex crimes and all this other stuff for a long time. And then it, it, it was, he, he minimized it to the, to the most minimal level possible to be like, yeah, so children were abusing other children and, and bestiality was going on, but let's not call it that. It was just disgusting stuff that was going on there. And all I, I, I published the video because I responded to him and I published the video because he was trying to keep this all hush hush and quiet and all the rest of it. And I was like, no way, man, I don't, I have a zero tolerance policy to control of information. Like you were saying, Emma, why you don't delete somebody's podcast. Like that's such a brilliant strategy because then you just let the record, like, like bring it onto the record book, like let the, the corporate body of human of people Go ahead and evaluate this information to determine it whether or not it has validity or not themselves. Like, but don't screen it, don't filter it, you know, because it's people that are doing that filtering that are like they have a different agenda. And it's like generally every time I found that, it's because there's worse skeletons in their closet. Every time, every time you got somebody who has this hell-bent agenda to be like, silence that person. Don't you talk about it? I'm like, this sounds exactly like pedophile handlers I've had in the past. Like, what's new here? nothing new under the sun you sycophants i'm on to you now and it's like so i just light the house on fire just light it on fire and you see if there's any wolves if there's any sheep if there's any snakes they all come crawling out and then you get to identify who's who and there was a lot of betrayal that took place because i got to find out some of the people i closely trusted have turned on me and have just gone around stabbing me in the back you know and it's like that's part of it it's it's inevitable it's an inevitability when people pick sides it shouldn't be something we pick sides about we shouldn't pick sides on who's a child. People that are abusing children need to be utterly held to the most extreme level of accountability. Like in the scriptures, the reason I really gravitate towards that, there was three punishments that were available. You got a beating, okay? You got a fine, like you had to repay. If you stole a bunch of stuff, they're like, you're gonna have to repay that stuff. Or you got executed. That was it. There was no imprisonment. The whole imprisonment system did not exist for a reason. You, or, or sorry, you also could chastise somebody with whips. You could physically mark them, mutilate their body. So that there was well-known, like there's a reason people cut the hands off of people overseas for a reason. It sends a really determinant message. We used to like in the underworld, we just cut their balls off of people. You make them a eunuch so they can't go around and do that or brand their forehead with pedophile. That was one of those things we like to do. You know, it's like, I just want to make sure nobody else has a, has a misunderstanding about what this thing is walking around here, like a wolf, like a monster, like people need to know what you are. So we can cut your penis off and your balls off today and you can become a mutilated man. So then you can never physically do the act again, or you can just let us kill you now. And it was generally, they mostly chose the second option. You know, they just didn't want their, they didn't want their family to know what they were. They didn't want their reputation to die. So they just would elect to be killed anyways. But if you offer those four punishments, as opposed to the other options that are so readily given around today, where like you get a slap on the wrist, uh, an interview I just did with the guy showed uh, one of the heirs to the, to the DuPont family who raped his six-year-old daughter and and three or three-year-old daughter and six-year-old son raped both of them, confessed to it, pled guilty to it. 
he got let off by the judge for time served and six months of house arrest, basically like a, a program to be like, oh, we're going to help you. She said, because you're not fit for the for the judicial system. She let him off with that because of the heir to the DuPonts. Like that guy's in the system. You know what I mean? Like that guy gets a green light because now we got you so good, buddy. You're one of us now. Like that's the guy who gets six months prison sent- jail sentence. And you're like, is that the guy we should turn justice over to those kinds of people? This is why my, my contention is that if anybody is one of these oath keepers for any of these other societies, they automatically have no right to be serving in those positions that they're in because they've sworn an oath to enforce something completely ulterior to the agendas that they're supposedly guarding and protecting and serving against. Amen to that. Oh my goodness. That you just brought up so many good points in there. And yeah, I agree. You know, these people that are in these secret societies, there is that facade like you were talking about where they're doing charity and they're doing all these good things. And that's what's presented to the public. But the oaths that they take go above the common law that people are abiding by. Their oaths supersede that. And so to allow that, we're allowing a criminal faction literally right above society to just exist and we're not intervening on it and it's completely wrong you know and anything that's secret why would you need a secret why does no other my job doesn't have secrets like i can go talk about what i do every day like it's it's just wrong on every level so i completely agree with you and appreciate you calling all of that out um so sort of on those lines um and this will be the last question for today and obviously you know, I can do a hundred million more episodes with you, but somebody asked, how do we shut the system down? The whole system, how do we break the programming and awaken the whole world to join together and say enough is enough? I'm just going to read you something out of my book because I took a little more time writing it. Yeah, absolutely. Y'all need to go get Nathan's book too. His book is amazing and you can get it in every single form and fashion possible. I I just want people to know that there is a way to go for the head because a lot of people are trying to attack the body of this thing and you're trying, you're trying to fight something. There's this, you're trying to literally kill something that is infested. You're trying to kill a parasite that has infested itself into every crevice of the body of like all of society. It's, it's infiltrated everywhere. And and it's not, it is, it is physical and spiritual. And so it's a, it's a kingdom that is literally operating under an ulterior motive and it allows them to control the narrative everywhere. And so how, how you really dismantle that is from the inside. You, you literally, you have to understand you're in it. You can't run away from it. You're like, there's a lot of people that want to just bug out and disappear and hide from all this stuff. There's nowhere you can hide from this. There's nowhere you can hide on this earth that's going to get you away from this system. None of you were made to run. You were made to stand and fight. I've read the scriptures quite diligently. Every time it says they turned and ran, it was an embarrassment. It was a shame. It was a, it was a, it was a loss. We are supposed to stand and fight and we are supposed to be offensive. We are supposed to take back what has been stolen from us. Take back the innocence. We are supposed to dismantle this kingdom selectively, consistently, deliberately, relentlessly, day and night with a relentless fervor, with a fire that's in us, that's unstoppable. When that happens, it enables us to utilize these tools that are with us. This is just some of the, one of the things I suggest here. Man, 
This is one of my last ones. I'll just read this. This is on page 314. This is my final chapter 42 called The Hunger. There are many things the family... Let me just back up. Maybe... Oh, yeah. This is a really good chapter, y'all. I read this whole chapter. You should just go listen to it. It's really good. It's on my website. <laughs> I say it because I want to read the whole chapter to you. It's salty. Just check this out for a second. Hang on there. Now I'm going to just read you a couple pages from my book. Let's right. just go for it. Whatever. Why not? Maybe it's better. I know some of you who are reading this can laugh as it strikes chords in your souls. In some ways, it's comical until it's not. When it's not about someone doing something odd and no one ever noticing, it suddenly becomes about someone finally being seen. I tell you this so that maybe you would not laugh the next time you notice a quirk in someone around you. Perhaps some of those church friends of mine should have bought me dinner instead of loading me with their scraps week after week or bought me groceries instead. Maybe one of my teachers should have looked a little closer and noticed the kid who eats many times the usual amount when free food is offered, but otherwise hardly eats at all. Maybe they shouldn't have. I no longer hold it against them in any way. Maybe it's better now they didn't so I could help you see this truth. It's not always going to be food, hunger, or leftovers pulled out of the trash. It's all about looking closer than a cursory or dismissive glance before you blow off someone who is having a panicky reaction to something mundane. Maybe ask a question. Ask why they might be that way. Maybe they've never felt safe enough to tell someone they've been hurt by someone who had that same shirt on. Maybe they'd nearly been drowned by family members during a teenage prank. Perhaps we all could learn to be a little more intentional with our friends and family and not so quick to dismiss a cry for help hidden by a laugh or self-deprecating joke. Hundreds of people throughout my life saw me digging through trash cans and backs of fridges, pulling out foil-lined snacks out of pockets. Hardly ever did they look closer or ask a heartfelt question. Maybe instead of your next tithe check getting dropped into an offering plate or donation box, it needs to go to your neighbor, your coworker, or a family friend. It's time we looked closer instead of looking away. Maybe some of those preparations you've stockpiled for the end of the world could help feed a family this week. Or perhaps the hours you spend watching Netflix could be spent talking to someone who needs your attention and time. Intentional ignorance will be accounted unto you in the days to come. Hunger is eating so many people alive. Some of you are starved for attention, never knowing the feel of lustless eyes upon their flesh. Some are hungry for friendship that is not tainted by manipulation and control. Others are drowning in debt because no one taught them how to manage money while they were making their work in the trade. We need to be the answers, not the problems. We need to look closely enough to feel the breath of their sobs on our cheeks. We need to hold the hurting and tell them, it's okay, you're safe now. We need to wrap our arms around the survivors and weep with those who weep. We need to linger and not run away from the horrible stories they need to tell. We need to build a hedge of protection around them as they leave their families, masters, pastors, or pimps. We need to be the empowering arms of grace, enfolding them in provision, protection, and love. I did not need more food to fix the hunger in my heart. What I needed was someone who cared about me more than the food on my plate or the lack thereof. What survivors need does not come in prepackaged cases located on aisle seven of our grocery stores. There's not enough food in the world to satisfy the need I see in a wounded one's eyes. When I look into the eyes of these survivors, I hear their hearts moaning with a hunger that transcends our flesh and blood bodies. It lingers in the depths of our souls. Who can satisfy the need to be held and comforted? 
who can screen our calls when our former handlers call and try to manipulate us back into their hands, who's willing to pay our mortgage so we can get counseling and restoration from the brutality of a lifetime lived in pain, who will pay attention when they see a little kid flinch at the pastor's movement. Child protective services and other corrupt corporations are not the answer and never will be. The followers of the way need to be. We need to be the answer to this. We need to have safe houses and underground railroads where survivors can be shuttled out of their physical or spiritual cages and into a new life of peace. We need to open up our once a week church buildings to be living quarters for the homeless, the addicts, and the deranged. The hospitals for the weary should never close their doors. We need to let the fear of the ex-cons and felons fade away. Those cultural taboos of different races, beliefs, traditions need to be covered by our truth and love. It's time we raise up the decaying stones from the miry clay. Now is the time we leave this world without its accusations of our ambivalence and powerless claims of greasy, godless grace. Those who are coming out of these families are going to be able to make a difference so few ever could. Once restored, these individuals are capable of few of things fewer still can fathom. The wounded ones were wounded for a reason. The enemy knows how to harm its deadliest, fo- its deadliest foes, and he does it early. The enemy spends too much time teaching its slaves his subtle and crafty ways, but without knowing it. Many of these survivors have been trained to destroy their captors' dungeons, palaces, and watery graves. There are many things the family and trade taught me, one of which is how to make someone disappear. What do you do with the knowledge of evading detection and blending into shadows and black market trades of identities and places to live when you grow weary from wickedness and choose to give and not take? What if those of you who know the trade become double agents and serve the Redeemer instead? What if the agents of the underworld built a railroad of redemption for those still trapped in its chains? What if you made duplicate copies and stole away the incriminating evidence which shows the world just what builds the empire above the streets? What if those who once slipped children into hotel rooms for paying guests instead use their minds to plot out escapes for the little ones and their moms? What if instead of smuggling flash drives of kitty porn and prescription drugs in your ultralight aircraft, you smuggled survivors who broke out of the family's grasp? What if those secret drives in the names of their pedophilic photographers and producers instead found their way into the hands of those who knew how to execute real justice and were not tied by statute of limitations, compromised judges, or oath-keeping justices? What if those who had the financial resources and insulated trusts and foundations bought up hotel chains and houses and apartments and used them to shuttle people to freedom instead of a place of torment, blackmail, and pedophilia? What if we bought children, mothers, and fathers out of the tunnels and the underworld and funded their complete restorations at private places of refuge? What if we hired holy ministers and deliverers out of their nine-to-five jobs and offered them beneficiaries who meet their financial needs? None of this can happen until we decide not to look away from these dark realities, but choose to face them instead. The Complete exposure of these crimes needs to be played in an endless stream before the world so they can't blink it away or minimize the screens of reality. We need to broadcast it on every station, every suggested video and trending link. It is time we use our black hats of hacking for great good instead of planting blackmail evidence on unruly brothers, sisters, knights, or families and state dissidents. Some of you architected agents of anarchy and chaos know of what I speak. 
hear me when now I say that the secrets of the underworld will stay hidden no longer. Dig into the digital closets of our high-ranking officials, leaders, and magistrates, and you will see that there are more than just skeletons hiding in those closets. There's more than just skeletons of affairs, drug habits, and corrupt contracts. Those skeletons had names like Jesse, Alex, Julie, Katrina, Samuel, Jared, and Penelope. I know their names, and I've not forgotten, and neither should you. They will be remembered. They are the ones whom we should never forget. The faceless fallen who built the bloody pillars of the empire where our cities, capitals, and cathedrals abide. The Hunger Games is not a work of fiction, but the maddening reality to those birthed into the families and made to pass through these brotherhoods. When will the days of luxury and comfortable living be enough? I know many of you are compromised. Company-controlled private back rooms at the family party saw to that. But speak the secrets. Show the truth before the child whose body you use to climb to power speaks it for you, and you burn for your crime. There is a time for redemption. There is a time for all kinds of immunity and justice. The hunger in our hearts demands it. It calls to us in the night, in the stillness while the world sleeps. We survivors see them, the faces of torment, pain, and betrayal. We see the brutes, the politicians, priests, and police who partook of our bodies and drank up our friends. They will not leave us. They linger and cling to our soul. We bit down our tongues to hold back the hurt, to prevent the dam from breaking loose and showering this world with our dark underworld. But the cracks are showing, and the inky waters of the abyss are linking to the, leaking to the surface And soon they will come upon you in a torrent, an unstoppable force of exposure. If only you would see us and hear us before it breaks loose. Will you look a little closer? Will you pay attention next time you go out to the bars or restaurants late at night and see the young girls work in the corner of your high-end downtown? Will you see the 18-year-old, we all know is only 13, but turning tricks for her well-dressed, upper-class confidence man? Will you see the homeless man begging for a meal on the corner and know that his story could just as easily have been mine? Will you wonder and find out why no one puts a stop to the madness, why they bust the outer rings of pedophiles, but never the inner circle of presidents and popes? Will you dig into our underworld and see what makes it pulse with perversion and pain? Will you forsake your fears and hold the hands of a former slave who faced down unimaginable horrors to break out of her controller's grip? We are not going to be pretty and well-dressed. Some of us woke up in a pool of vomit, trying to survive another night by escaping from the memories in glass bottles marked 120 proof. Some of us have sold our body to anyone who is willing to buy us a drink or take us out to a meal. Others are working full-time jobs and living well, but the nine prescription bottles in their bathroom tell you how they're really doing. They are surviving, but with the right kind of support and understanding, they could be thriving survivors once set free become the most courageous bold and impactful people who have ever lived they're not born with the fear of darkness as most are they do not fear the death of their bodies the pain of torture imprisonment or rape they've known these horrors and yet they still breathe they do not fear character assassinations or the mocking and betrayal they are warriors they are heroes who deserve our thanks they will be the ones who run back into the fires and snatch those burning bodies from the flames. 
They will be the ones charging into the depths of families' estates and setting the captives free. They will stand together in the face of impossible odds because they know one could put 100 to flight and two could put 10,000 to flight. It's because they know whose they are that they will not run. They will press through the fear, the pain, and the hunger and never let go when trembling hands reach out for help. The hunger in my chest is never satisfied. It likely never will be. As long as I'm given breath in these lungs, it will linger. In contrast to all the quirks of mine, which have been relieved, this one Yahweh has entrusted to me for good. It's a longing for justice, the need to save just one more. It's a burning need to go back out on those downtown streets and document the rings operating in my cities and state, praying and awaiting the day when those running the justice system don't continue to hinder the revelation of their secret trade. The hunger drives me to prayerfully intercede in my city's high places and examine thousands of miles of tunnel systems where the covens operate and defile our lands. It is a thirst that drives me to pray for the conversion of corrupt officials and blinded oath-keeping officers who enable these wicked practices and their victims too. The hunger in my heart is not, is not most satiated when I'm eating a free meal at a friend's house, but when I hold the hands of a man who's dressed in a $1,000 suit as he weeps for the first time, confessing his need for redemption from his misery and self-hate. It comes when I hear the testimony of a survivor like Mary Lou Lake and Donna Carrico, whose burning hands were washed in the living waters of our king. There's a hunger in every one of you. It's a missing piece of our makeup that the true God of mercy holds onto. It is to drive us towards the finish line, towards more jewels to build our crown of glory we can cast at the Messiah's feet. Yahweh says that he holds a white stone for every single person with a name written on it that he, we alone will someday understand. Maybe once this name is read or spoken aloud, it finally satisfies the hunger and gives us his eternal rest. But until then, the hunger is there to drive us out of our comfort zones of complacency and into our purpose. The fears you once held do not need to linger. Only surrender them to the Messiah. By his redemption, they can become your greatest strength. Take those talents and use them for the great good and the saving of many lives. Don't be lulled into passivity, but let the hunger drive you towards deliverance, provision, and hope. Not all of you need to infiltrate luxurious cabins in the mountains where they hide incriminating hard drives in plain sight but some of you do. Not all of you need to exploit the back doors of the underground trade market, but some of you do. Every one of you so-called pastors and shepherds out there needs to repent of ever allowing and endorsing deceived or willful oath-keeping cowards into your flocks or into your own homes. It's time, like in the days of Charles Finney, we utterly drive out the brother and sisterhoods of deception from our most precious families. Find the way you can satisfy the hunger of the hurting. Find a way to be the answer to this insufferable problem. Clothe the naked, give water to the thirsty, and give shelter to the homeless. It's not hard, but that does not mean it's going to be easy. Following the way of the Messiah is not going to come naturally, not at first. But as you yield to his instructions, you will see that his yoke is infinitely easy and his burden is light. There's no greater joy in the world than seeing a captive boy go free or a formerly shackled woman laugh unhindered for the first time in her life. That was my coworker. I started talking about this stuff at my work at this place called Aim House in Boulder, Colorado. And there was this gal who was, I'm sorry, this, this, she, 
she identified as a transgender and they started and the introduction circle of every meeting they started wanting us to introduce ourselves with these pronouns they were policing speech and i was refusing to do it i, I don't like it when police i don't like it when people put muzzles on my mouth i don't care what agenda you have behind it i do not consent and they were they literally threatened to fire me because I wouldn't introduce myself in this, this late legalese. They wanted me to introduce myself like this. And we had transgender coworker. And obviously this created some rifts because there was a lot of them there. And they thought I, uh, they had a, a judgment of me for why I was doing that. They had no idea because I'd literally been muzzled. People used to muzzle me. They'd shove ball gags in my mouth and make me be silent. Like I, I don't like being told what I'm not allowed to say and what I'm allowed to say. Don't police my language. Anyways, I started sharing my testimony there. And the, 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 the person, the person who was the transgender at my work, who they started doing this for, or in a, in a way they enforced the policy for came up to me. And, uh, she shared with me, she showed me her, her, she showed me her thighs her hips. She had been bolted to a wall. Her father was in the military and raised her to be like me. And he bolted her to a wall. This she, He sold her, physically sold her off to, to a man who bolted her to a wall for so he could so he could rape her, ruin her. She was his slave, physically like, like a movie bad in a cage bolted to a wall she had scars from pins going through her bones horrible that's who i'm talking about there her and i bonded in a way that nobody else could in that building and they're trying to police my language to help her help them have a way of feeling accepted the way we feel accepted is we speak freely be who you are but you know what? Identities got all freaked up. You know what I'm saying? My identity was so screwed up. I didn't even know what my name was. I literally didn't know what to have my daughter call me. This sounds so ridiculous. I didn't even know what to have Naomi call me. Nate, Nathan, Jason, Joshua. Like I didn't know who I, I literally didn't know my name. I don't, I still don't think I have my actual birth name. It's ridiculous. Like I lived in such a world of falsehood. I don't know who I am. Actually, like who my dad is, who my mom is, who my grandfather. I don't actually know that information, not with certainty. That's why I talk about that name that's given, that's that's finally entrusted to us. Again, there's a name that he's holding on to for all of us. Like we bonded her and I in a way that that nobody else could, and it set her free to share something she had never shared. Like because I was so raw and vulnerable, because I was relentless at sharing what I had been through, even though I was being persecuted, even though I lost my job, my father picked up the phone and made sure those people. And you know what? My boss hated me because I was telling these victims, okay, this place, people are charging tens of thousands of dollars a month or tens of thousands of dollars to send their rich children there to help them get off their drug addictions, to be able to be productive members of society and all this other stuff. And they were having night terrors, okay? They were having alien abduction experiences. And I had this thing called the Red Pill Group where we could talk about any topic. 
anybody could bring it up. No matter what it was, we would talk about it. We'd talk about all these crazy conspiracies. I'm like, you want to talk about werewolves? Let's go there. You want to talk about abductions? Let's read some books on abductions. Let's talk about what it is. Like we started having this group about anything that anybody wanted to talk about was allowed in there. And it started being incredible because these children, these young men started sharing what they'd been done, what had been done to them when they were growing up, these super wealthy families, they started talking about ritual abuse. They started talking about this stuff. And one of them who was a, a, an heir to an incredibly powerful family started sharing about these abduction experiences. Okay. And we started identifying terror, sleep paralysis, nightmares. They used to call it nightmares. They used to believe a demon sit on your chest, choke you to death and terrorize you and feed off that energy. It's called a nightmare. And Psalm 91 literally is the solution for deliverance from that. You shall not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Those are literally that Shadim, those evil spirits. That's why that's that weapon. So I told him, I said, hey, next time it happens, don't get up and take the Xanax. They're always telling him, you got to take the, take the drugs. This was the, the solution there. I said, I said, stand up and read Psalm 91. Just read that out loud. Read that out loud and see what happens. And it stopped it. And he was like, what? Well, then he told his therapist about it. He's like, oh, listen, I can read the Bible and it stops his stuff. So then I got told I would be fired if I told them for breaking treatment protocols. I didn't tell him to go do the treatment protocols that the, the, the licensed therapist was giving him. And I literally got threatened. I'd be fired. And that was like my second strike, right? Because I wouldn't use the they, them, theirs pronouns and all this stuff in the same way. I was respectful to the individuals, but I was not participating in the collective forced version of it. Two different things here. I'm not trying to degrade anybody that's identifying in this capacity at all. What I'm trying to say is I don't want, we should not be enforcing people's language. Does that make sense? Anyways, she was one of the people that became my greatest advocate and ally during that experience at that time. It was because of her that I was able to write these types of scenarios in. When you are bold enough to speak the truth and actually look at this stuff in the face and not hide it anymore, if you're the victim of it, then you tell the truth. What it does is it sets all kinds of victims free around you from that fear of what other people are going to think of them. It delivers them from shame. That's the weapon that defeats this entire thing. It's that seed of love. It's that, it's that oxytocin. It's what bonds us together. It's because we are in this fight together. No matter what womb you came from, no matter what your background is, we have to resist this together. We are an absolute unstoppable force when we stand together. But as long as they keep dividing our house and splitting our identities and compartmentalizing of us and fractionalizing our resistance movements and being like, you're a conservative and you're a liberal and all these other versions of how they shatter our identities. Are you pro this or against this? Are you for this or against this? As long as they keep letting us divide each other and systematize each other into categories, we're going to lose. But if we would be united in love and truth, we become an absolute in, indefeatable army. And that's what's required for us to cut the head off of this dragon once and for all. When we truly walk with love and with truth, it is the two-headed, the double-edged sword that dismantles this entire kingdom. The first time I pulled out this sword, I was doing immersions down in a waterfall. We do these meetups every once in a while. If one of you wants to come, we're going to be doing another one the third week of October. I'd love to meet you and hug you and love on you and encourage you and give you wonderful treasures. I've got all kinds of beautiful gemstones because you are the precious treasure of the creator and you need to see that to know it. First time I had this thing, I walked into that waterfall to do immersions and I was wearing the sword and that buckler. And I walked down in there while wearing the sword, which is not a good idea because it's high carbon steel. But there was a serpent, literally, it looked like a venomous serpent that was crawling around and all the children are like, oh my gosh, it's a, it's a venomous snake. And they thought it was, oh, what did they think? Is there a water of, not a water market a copperhead which it totally looked like and they're like there's a copperhead over there and i'm like did you guys kill it and they're like no there's all these children just running around right on this waterfall i'm like cut the head off of it and i'm all like 
stupid sword. Give me this new sword. I took that thing and I chopped it in half because its head was stuck down underwear. So I couldn't identify whether it was a venomous one or not, but I cut it in half and then its head reared up. Because if you just attack the body, this is all that happens. The head rears up, the actual most dangerous part of this thing. And it hissed at me. And then I chopped its head directly off. That was the first time I ever used this thing. That's why it's kind of rusty because I was in that waterfall for a long time. I cut the head off of snakes. That's how you win. You win this war by cutting the heads off of these monsters. And I literally mean that. That is the way you do that. You can use the sword of your mouth. It's far more effective because it's replicatable and endorsable. I wrote these words seven years ago. This is so deadly, y'all. I don't read it very often. I just did tonight. And I'm like, dang. That's some deadly stuff, y'all. You have a weapon inside you that's known as a pen. Pick it up, son. Write down your testimony. Type out your testimony. Publish your testimonies. Don't let them keep it a secret any longer. When you do, you know what happens? We become unstoppable because it sets the captives free. Amen. Oh, my goodness. I love your book so much. Where can people find it? Where can people connect with you, Nathan? snatched from the flames at protonmail.com you can send me an email there and uh they can go to youtube.com backslash nathan reynolds if you want to see a bunch of my videos i got the audiobook there i've got a whole bunch of other stuff i've got a dissociative identity playlist the id playlist if you want to work your way into there that's all kinds of stuff that's all kinds of goodies in there um becoming a gibberim if you want to become a mighty man mighty woman of valor i've got a playlist on that but the best one for you guys you know what you need you need the cure which is that bread i'm telling you y'all you think it's crazy but it's good for you it'll change your life fresh milling your flour and cold immersion so that's called becoming a millenite and uh, becoming a millenite so we've got a facebook group that's called becoming a linenite linenite and then we uh, also have a discord server if any of you want to hang out in there i'm never on there i'm sorry so bad. <laughs> I have, I do. I just, I'm it's hard to keep up. <laughs> I like, I like this venue. I do. I just, that one's very unfamiliar and I can't post videos and can't post endless pictures and all that. Anyways, there's some constraints there that bother the heck out of me, but it's there and I'll jump on there. I promise. Eventually I'll get back on there. Um, and then they can go to snatchfromtheflames.com. That's my, uh, my website. I have my book available there. I also have the entirety of the recording of the dramatized scriptures on, um, on audio. You can download that for free. There's my book right there. You can listen to it all. You can read it and have me listen. Pray. I, I'll, I'll sing it and read it to you as, as you go along. If you want to read it there, I've got the audio scriptures. That's the real sword, y'all. Equip yourself in that. Wash yourself in that water for a while. It'll change you forever, son. Anyways, that's my website. There's great prayer resources. I can't encourage you enough. Go to the, click that resource one. You betcha. Yeah, click that. Somebody's finally helping me with my website, y'all. It's getting better. Hang in there. It's going to get better. Anyways, this is from uh, Mary Lou Lake. That was one of the survivors I referenced in there. Her book, What Witches Don't Want Christians to Know, salty book, deadly book. <laughs> Kill all the kingdom. I encourage this for female survivors, by the way, way more. There's there's a lot more understandability and relatability there. But she's if you scroll down, those are these are her prayers. These were incredibly helpful for me on dealing with this. This is like their morning prayers. They had an evening prayer. And they had a prayer for trauma and fragmentation. That was like the one of the most powerful weapons I ever got in getting healing and freedom and deliverance from all of this was, was helping heal and not explode, not, not, not totally lose my mind because they, they, they tried to get me to go back home. You'll read in those comments. If you guys dig into those ridiculous comments, they're like, just, we just want you to come back home. It's called return to center programming. It's a bunch of psychopaths. Anyways, don't go back home. Not one time. Bunch of ridiculous liars. Anyways, those prayers were super effective. I pray them on a regular basis. I encourage you all to do it. It's an absolute weapon in your warfare and it, it literally will help you dismantle this kingdom of darkness. So anyways, I love you all so much. Thank you, Emma, for having me on. I absolutely am thrilled to do this show and I uh, look forward to being 
if you guys have questions, you can you can write me. I will try to respond to them, or I'll just be on the chats when Emma drops this. I'm going to try to be in there in the in the live chats. I'll also premiere these on my channels, and I'll be there in the chats. Ask questions. I, a lot of times I'm sitting there in the chat because nobody's talking about anything but like the weather. It's real lame. But come on in there, survivors. You all are the best. I like you all. You're salty. You're spicy. You're dangerous. Come hang out. Man, you light a fire under everybody, Nathan. And it it is. It's neat to. We appreciate how engaged you are with your community. That's not common. In general, I think with content creators, they sort of take for granted the the people that are surrounding them and uplifting them. And you do such a good job making everybody feel so special. And you're literally a walking miracle. Your book is phenomenal. You guys, please go pick it up. If you can't afford it, he has PDF versions. Like you said, he has a whole playlist where he narrates it. And you hear how entertaining he is whenever he reads. You get to hear him read his own book. That's not common either. I go on Audible. I love audiobooks. And it's you don't ever get that the real author reading the book, you know? And it's really special whenever you get that experience. So go listen to it if you're, you know, like me and you drive a lot or uh, and like to listen in the car whenever you're getting ready. If you can't afford it, listen to it. There's a PDF version. And I, if you can, please purchase it. You help Nathan out. You help his family. You know, I always say the government's never going to give survivors jobs to talk about this. You know, we have to help them create it. And we do that by supporting their work. You know, books books are an eternal way that Nathan's testimony stays alive. They can come after his YouTube channel. You know, they can come after any my YouTube channel, all my interviews with him, you know, but these books, they they really do stand the test of time. So this is a really great way that you can keep his testimony, give it as a gift to somebody. If you have a friend that's waking up from this stuff, it's a really good way to introduce it if you don't feel comfortable having the conversation. And just go support Nathan. Get eyes on him. Go watch his content. You know, he explained a bunch of playlists that he has. He reads the whole Bible on his channel. It's amazing. Go engage in his communities. Become a Linenite. Become a, a, a Millenite. Get your bread. Get your living water. We have so many ways that we can support survivors. And in the meantime, it helps us all heal. Nathan, you're a beacon of light. Thank you so much for everything that you do and that you contribute. You're such a special human. It's such an honor to get to listen to you. We're all so lucky that you're here, that that we get to hear your testimony and get to hear these these incredible, heartbreaking and inspiring stories that you have to share that that are going to uplift humanity. So thank you so much for coming on, Nathan. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Look forward to yeah. talking to you soon. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to Nathan's going to be a regular, everybody. So uh, get used to seeing him on this channel because he's going to be on a lot more. But go support us, too. I'm going to have all the all Nathan's links in the show notes, all my links in the show notes. We appreciate you guys. This is seriously the best community ever. The the survivor community is just absolutely phenomenal. I appreciate all the hype that you guys always give every guest. And you guys are always there in the chats on the premieres. And I'm just so grateful. I couldn't do this without you guys. So you guys, God bless you. Thank you so much for always tuning in and, and for supporting. And we'll see you next time.